I think the most effective way to bypass all this stuff is to willingly be with whatever arises. For someone who is very averted to that lifestyle, what's the first step? Is it just awareness? Just breaking that disillusionment? Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Please like and subscribe or review if you're listening or watching this podcast. Today's guest is Will Resin. Will integrates 21 years of inner work, esoteric inquiry, and cultural research with 13 years of professional experience in the healing arts. Everything Will does supports his personal mission to end human suffering and his professional mission to bring trauma-informed care into the mainstream so that it can be available to everyone who needs it without stigma or exclusion. Will is a true expert. You will see for yourself on the podcast. I hope you enjoy it deeply. Stay blessed. Um, from your perspective, what are the biggest things that frustrate you with the, the kind of the self-help world cliches, like the the big popularized talking points that people use to sell the quick fix money-making schemes to, to healing? Um, well, <laughs> Let's get into it, man. You know, the there's an image in personal development that you can get rapid results, right? And that we should be chasing this, like, do it quickly. And um, that it has to hurt. We gotta go big. And, um, Trying to think of what exactly I want to say here. I think that in therapy and in personal development, more in personal development than therapy, we we end up people end up with this false sense of hope that they can do something really fast, and they're they're sold or enrolled in an idea that if they spend a lot of money or if they go all in on themselves, that suddenly life's going to be different, and that's just not true. It takes time for change to happen inside of us. Um, and it takes consistent, you know, self-awareness, behavioral changes. Uh, there are plenty of seminars, weekend seminars, that'll tell you that they're going to like help you to process and heal your trauma in the next seven days or in the next three days or in the next two hours. Or I did that thing and I shook a bit and I'm free of all my trauma. And that's just, that's just bullshit. Yeah, it's, um, it's an impossible business plan to sell real healing. Uh, menu that takes yeah so I, I had i woke up per se i know it's a cliche thing to say but around 21 mm. it's been two years two and a half years straight of doing this and i feel like i've moved a little bit and i'm okay with it because yeah. it, it's i know it just takes so much time because my system has been operating a certain way for so long that mm. once you break the chain it takes a, a super long time to to steadily do that how do you go about that with people you're helping because the ego just wants so fast to change so fast mm -hmm. how do you get someone in that position to like understand and know that this is going to take a long time and that's perfectly fine well one of the places i start is with science so most of us aren't really educated on how our body functions and so uh, the analogy that i will often use um is exercise which i was using like right before we started here exercise is a really good way of thinking about things and if I want my body to change shape, 
I have to do things consistently. I got to create the right conditions for that shape to change. And it requires consistent action across time for that change to take place, right? It's not going to happen really fast unless I use some sort of substance or unless I use really extreme measures. Now it's possible to do that, but that's hard on the body that affects our health. So when we understand that moving slowly is going to yield the greatest change. I mean, it takes time. Like you said, we're going to be in battle with our ego, especially here in the United States. The United States, uh, capitalism is just a huge part of how we think about things in the world. I got to be first and I need to be the best. There's some sort of false hierarchy that's created in the world. I need to push you out of my way if that means that I can get ahead, right? And I need to do it really fast. Fast is better. Well, so we got to decondition that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And science is one of the ways that we can we can better understand how we function. Right? So, and I'll use the nervous system as an example. Right? Getting the body to change the way it responds to like sensory input, like that takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time. So my work is focused on changing the conditioned responses in an individual. So can we get the automatic response of the individual to change, not the conscious response of the individual to change? And that takes a lot of time. Especially in, I notice in myself that we become hyper-reactive in the space between stimulation or searching for stimulation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I even noticed it in myself. I'm working, you know, writing an art new article, mm-hmm. break, check Instagram, check my DMs, check this, check yep. that. And just constantly in this space of chaos. Right. What's the effect of that nervous system? Like, what are we, what, what demon are we playing with right now in society that we're, we're all, always like, again, using stimulation in, in our breaks? Yeah. Well, what it does is it, it doesn't, there's no space. So a good song, a good piece of music is good because of the spaces between the notes and the points where rest is, is added in the music, right? If we were continuously doing an in-breath, there'd be no out-breath. There'd be no space between the breaths, right? So when we're continuously f- taking in input, there's no room for creativity, really. We think that we're outputting a ton of creative stuff, but it's in the pause that new ideas come, right? And a lot of that, I think, is a symptom more than the problem. I think it's a symptom of many of us just being in an amped up state. We're in a sympathetically dominant society, we could say, right? If we think about the branches of the nervous system, or you have our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. Dr. Stephen Porges, who's the founder of polyvagal theory, helps us to better understand the branches of the of the parasympathetic nervous system, whether we're in social engagement or whether we're asleep or whether we're frozen, right? So I, I think that our culture tends towards action and producing something. And social media gives us that false dopamine hit. Like, you know, if you listen to Andrew Huberman's work, yeah. you know, he really explains the science of how that works. And we build those neural pathways, we get conditioned, or we condition ourselves to do that so we don't pause. But man, if I were to work the way I used to, I would be miserable. Yeah, it's um, going back to the, calling out the capitalist system. Not that I'm you know, Marxist by any means, but it's that when we're taught that to, to have conditional love, to believe that our worth, our worthiness, our value is based on our product, mm-hmm. our performance, on our ability to produce content writing or, or make money. Yeah. 
we then reward ourselves based on those metrics. And to get those metrics, you have to be ignoring how you feel, yeah. everything going on in your system. So you're always just trying to get that love from validation yeah. that then makes you be turned on all the time, right? Because yeah. if you're turned off, you can't grind for eight hours straight. You can't do that stuff. So, no, but, but what's interesting is that when we find a good middle ground, we can produce more in smaller amounts of time that's more effective. 100%. Right? And, and it's... I mean, again, I come back to this exercise analogy. If I don't have proper recovery and I don't have proper hydration and food, I'm not going to really do much for my yeah. body. You know, I'm not the picture of fitness or anything like that. But that's just because I put my attention elsewhere most yeah. of the time in my life. But if I wanted to be, I know that it's an equation. It's a very simple equation, right? Like if I exercise too much and I don't rest, my body can't repair itself. And it's the same way at some point. Just because we're young or just because we can work, you know, 12 hour days or we can work 18 hour days, just because we can doesn't mean that there's not an impact. We may not be feeling it right now, but we will at some point in our life, the body will eventually say enough. And then we have to find a new way. I mean, oftentimes it's too late because our culture supports that idea. Going back to the workout analogy, if we extend that analogy, what are the steroids in the self-help world? Like yeah. what's making that's us, a good, that's what's a good stunting our, our development and making us like, well, go as hard as we can and then, you know, fucking up our health. I think it's chasing that feeling of euphoria. Uh, Ram Dass puts it into, into words greatly, like chasing, getting high. He talks about getting high. What's the high? Meditation. The high might be like emotional expression. This is a good, this is a, this is one that, um, my opinion is different than many people in the industry. People believe that catharsis or big emotional experiences are what lead to healing. They think that they need to do specific kinds of breathwork exercises to activate their system so that they can discharge this energy. When in fact, all they're doing is stimulating themselves to feel high, mm -hmm. right? It can be good for us to learn how to direct our breathing. That can be useful in certain situations. But if we're doing it all the time, it's again, it's just us. It's like... I'm leveraging caffeine to stay awake instead of having enough sleep so that I'm alert, right? That's one of the, that's, a, that's an example. These, workshop experiences that are designed to trigger people, that doesn't help. That's so, just chasing. Give me an example. What's, uh, well, not like don't call someone now, but more no, so no, like no. what's a, a situation where you like they'll trigger like what's a common trigger you use in those circumstances? Well, it might be to shout or to yell at somebody or to get them to cry or get them to be mad, uh, right? So like yeah. the the logic around it is that if I have you relive your trauma, you're gonna feel healed, right? Which is very inaccurate. And that's like clickbait videos yep. for the content, all that kind of sure, stuff. Sure, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like yeah. You see a person crying, you see a person shaking, you say, look, this person, and then afterwards the person's being interviewed, I feel amazing. Well, of course you do. Or plant medicines. Or go. drugs that are called plant medicines. It's like, let's just, we need to somehow experience God, and that's going to cause us yeah. to heal. So, so happy to hear you. I got a big problem with, with the psychedelics. Yeah. Um, not that I'm, I'm against them, but it's just turned into this cliche where people take them and they realize something. Mm -hmm. You realize, you do, I do believe you see a blueprint to some degree. You see like... Sure. Oh, I had this trauma, yada yada. But then I think we have to walk through the fire in reality. Like the the real. 100%. I love how you said that. We have to walk through the fire in reality. It's in the real. It's in the world. It's in. It's through my body that I'm doing the healing. One hundred percent. 
and I got to bring that insight back, but I got to integrate it into life. I need to live differently. Yeah. yeah well, I think I've only done an intense experience like three times, but each time I was just told, be in your body, be in the present moment, mm-hmm. love more, uh, get out of your ego. It's the yeah. same shit over and over again. And I was like, how many more times do I have to do this to hear the same, to hear the same fucking yeah. thing? I have to face this thing in reality and every second to turn my nervous system into this yeah. reality. So I have no desire to do it do yeah. anymore. It doesn't like before when I needed it, I was like, mushrooms, all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. Now it's like, I don't, I don't need it. Um, maybe if I need clarity on something, mm-hmm. but yeah, I have Alan to love this. Ellen Watts said, when we get the message, hang up the phone. Because we will. You know, we don't keep calling somebody asking the same question and getting the same answer. Although we do. Yeah. Many people do that. And many people call their friends and ask them the same question and get the same answer. But at some point we need to put that into action or call it what it is. Right. These journeys and these like experiences, they're just getting high. Yeah. (laughs) Let's just call it getting high. Getting high feels great. Yeah. It feels wonderful. But let's not call it healing. Yeah, like, and I experimented with the psychedelics early on in my life significantly. There were many years of intense experimentation, and I don't, I don't need it anymore. Yeah, and well, I didn't need it. It was useful in that it helped me to connect with parts of myself I don't know that I would have connected with. Yeah, but again, the work happens in the world. Yeah, this is more so my my spiritual side of the explanation, and I think when you're psychedelics, my eyes are experienced the next level of the game. That's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. And when I come back, I'm like, but I want, I want to learn this game. Yeah. I want to learn to master this game. If we're always trying to go to the next game over and over again, we're not really trying to like to get our shit together in this, in this, uh, in this dimension. I see people always being like, oh, I got to realize the truth, the the yada, yada. It's like, sure. But this is, this is more important. Like figure this thing out. Like that's your priority right now. Yeah. Don't worry about the next stage so much as you should right now. Yeah. But that's but that's what it is, right? If we if we really dig into mystics' teachings, their teachings are about awareness and about living in the moment. Right? It's about getting the noise out of the way. So there's a quote that I begin that I run a training that teaches people about trauma and about somatics. And in the beginning, we begin the training with this quote. I'll, I'll share it with you here. It's a quote I love by Anthony DeMello, who's quoting a Sufi. And I I don't know where the quote exactly comes from, but it goes like this: When the eye is unobstructed. The result is sight. When the ear is unobstructed, the result is hearing. When the nose is unobstructed, the result is smell. And when the mouth is unobstructed, the result is taste. When the mind is unobstructed, the result is wisdom. And when the heart is unobstructed, the result is love. And so when we, for me as a practitioner, when I'm with a person, my objective, my goal is to support the individual to remove the barriers to feeling connected to life, to experiencing their aliveness. And that means to be able to really feel the richness, the range of human experience, and to be able to tolerate that range of human experience so that they can tolerate sadness and happiness, terror and rage, joy, ecstatic bliss, right? grief, all the different parts of what it is to be human, anxiety and excitement, right? To be able to, to, to differentiate these feelings that they have inside themselves, because life is about being alive. And how else do I do that other than by experiencing the world through my body, 
I'm assuming the biggest barrier to experiencing objective reality is trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that it's that which inhibits our ability to be here in the present moment, mm -hmm. right? It's the living memory of something that was overwhelming. It was too much. It was just more than we could process or handle. So we fragment. Yeah. So we'll definitely get into all like how to get over, um, you know, older experiences of trauma. But I'm always, what I'm always curious about is living from this moment now. You and I, or anyone listening to this right now. How can you not traumatize yourself moving forward? Like, mm -hmm. How do you, when, you, when you're facing an adverse situation that may cause trauma, how do you not traumatize yourself? That's a really good question. And I've started a foundation to answer that question. How do we prevent trauma? Um, I mean, I think it requires us as a community to be present with each other in a different way. So there's an intelligence to this like fracturing or fragmenting that can happen during really intense and hard situations. And the intelligence is that if it's going to be overwhelming, I need to be able to disconnect myself from feeling it so that I don't become so overwhelmed. Right. And that means that's going to be a thing that biologically it just happens. It's not a thing I can think my way through. So how do we get through situations that might otherwise be traumatizing? It's a, the answer is much bigger than than I'd like it to be, which is sure. we gotta we gotta build the right conditions in our life to to have that kind of resilience that we can be in a situation that's incredibly stressful without it knocking us out of ourselves. But then we also need to have the support of a community that can be with us, not somebody that says it's gonna be okay. Somebody that says, I'm fucking with you and it's not okay, you know, and I'm going to keep being with you. Why is that connection so important? Because I'm one of those stubborn motherfuckers who did it all alone. Yeah. Uh, the, I took the alpha male, mm -hmm. you know, mentality. Mm -hmm. Fuck me in many ways. So I'm always curious in you know, why is that such an important step to take? Well, there's only so much we can do alone. Yeah. And the reason it's so important is because it's a biological need, right? So our organism if we think of ourselves and we get rid of the personalities we just think about ourselves at like an animal we are one of the only species that cannot survive without care from a caregiver for at least the first five years of our lives sometimes much longer right so it's embedded in us it's a part of us right so if we don't have that social connection it's really really hard on us it's hard. not only do we feel isolated, but we can feel ashamed. We can feel, we can, you know, there can be our ability to emotionally connect can be thwarted or stunted in some ways. Like it's just harder for us. But when we have that person there or people there, there's um, a sense of the world might be hard, but someone's there and I don't have to do it alone. So like, if I can't take care of myself, someone else can, I'm not constricting around the constriction. I can let the constriction be there. Yeah. I, I have this saying, I'll say healing happens in connection, hmm. right? And Dr. Peter Levine talks about this trauma is what happens in an absence of an empathetic witness. It's one of the quotes that goes around. And what Levine's pointing to is that a situation while overwhelming doesn't become something that's stored or like a post-traumatic stress reaction sometimes doesn't become that when we have that other person there 
he tells a story in his book in an unspoken voice about getting hit by a car. When he got hit by that car, there happened to be a pediatrician that was there. She was just with him. She sat with him while he was disoriented, while he was lying on the ground until the paramedics showed up. And there was that compassionate witness, which is what Dr. Gabor Mate talks about. Yeah. Right? Like, but that is a fundamental thing that we see the mystics teaching about this too. And when that's there, when that person's there, there's something that happens in our body where the overwhelm that we would be feeling, that we'd be getting the same feedback from ourself, right? we call it a somatosensory feedback loop, right? It's like, oh, I'm feeling this, the pain. Oh, I'm feeling the terror. Oh no, I'm terrified. Oh no, I'm terrified, right? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like putting a microphone against the speaker. But when there's another person there, we start to ping against them and go, oh, maybe it's, they're okay. They're not scared. Maybe, maybe it might be okay, right? But the person doesn't say we're okay. They're just with us. As an example, um, I told a story in a meeting earlier. And uh, the story I told was I was flying through Seattle back to Austin from Oregon. And on my trip, this was during the pandemic so everybody had to wear masks and all that stuff so i'm walking from the plane from my gate to the bathroom to catch my connecting flight and i'm i have i've really got to pee I'm like just zeroed in on the bathroom right and as i get close to it there's a guy who's there's a commotion going on and there's this man who's kind of wobbling and then he starts to pass out and you can tell he he's he urinated on himself he wet himself and um, there were some people around him and they seemed concerned, but not sure what to do. Right? Just really un uncertain. Like people were kind of trying to hold him and do other things. And so I walked over there and I knelt down and I started directing them and I just started talking with him. And I asked him some questions. I helped him to orient to his space. And I just told him to listen to my voice. And I was like, look, I'm right here with you. He's like, I think I'm going to die. Am I going to die? I'm going to die. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm right here with you. And I just was there with him. I held his hand. He cried a little bit. And it turned out he his he's diabetic and his blood was really high. I don't remember what it was. I want to say it was like in the 600s, but I think that's probably, I think I'm probably wrong. So anyway, it was really high. And so I just, just with him, just talking with him, holding his hand. And he started to calm down. Yeah. And when he calmed down, his body stopped having as much of an intense reaction. It was still intense. The paramedics showed up. I was able to communicate with them. And I could see that something was different for him. But no one else knew to do that. And I'm not saying that to, like, that's not an egotistical thing about mm -hmm. myself. You know, it's just that we aren't taught how to be with each other or to even have the impulse to be with somebody. When something like that's happening, we just keep going. We ignore it. And I, I think most of us, we don't know what to do. Yeah. Somebody else will do it. Speaking to the power of like feeling attachment, um, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've encountered various traumatic experiences in my life. Mm -hmm. you know, strongest one probably recently is, is seeing my mother pass away in front of me. Yeah. And still nothing. I've moved through that stuff, not fully, but enough where it's not like a, an intense yeah. situation, but still nothing trumps not having secure attachment as a kid. Yeah. That no matter what I've experienced in my life, yep. any adverse situation, horrible experiences, mm -hmm. 
not having a secure attachment as a kid for my parents yeah. is still something that is really hard for me yeah. to I, I live outside of it, my awareness, but still, it still comes up a lot. My nervous yeah. system is so like that. It's the foundation of our life. Yeah. It's a, early life is how we make sense of the world, right? Like that's, that's, that's when we, when we as a, an organism start to better understand our environment, like we're getting feedback, right? And if it, if there was an absence of, of connection or there was sporadic or intermittent connection and not necessarily reliable emotional support, that's the blueprint, right? So learning that takes time. Did you have a secure attachment growing up? I did, yeah. So was it, it was a journey for you there was, in that there, realm? Or? There were moments of fracturing of that. And I had some pretty significant experiences during my teenage years where that whole, what I thought was a secure attachment was just totally fragmented for me. And so I, I, I've been pulling, you know, I've put the pieces back together, but continue to put the pieces back together, trusting in relationships and things like that. I know it's obviously a very individual, individual answer, but for people who did struggle having that growing up, which is almost all of us in the system, because again, capitalist structure, parents have to work mm -hmm. all the time, no time to be at home for the kids. Mm -hmm. Almost everyone is under that boat. Mm -hmm. What are first, obviously, I mean, what are the first steps people can take to start healing that wound of not feeling mm -hmm. securely attached? Well not feeling securely attached like really so beginning where we are yeah. um i i would I, where i point people when it comes to attachment work is diane pool heller's work so diane pool heller wrote a book called the power of attachment and I, I highly recommend it she's somatically trained she worked with dr peter levine for years i think she still may be a, a trainer for the somatic experiencing institute but so she understands the nervous system component, but she also understands the attachment component. And the two are intimately connected, like how we're forming bonds with others. But that book really describes the styles of connection and some strategies that we can use in partnerships or in friendships to better get to know ourselves and then to start venturing to get to know that dynamic. Because in, in connecting with another, there's a risk. Like when I... And we'll just use like figurative example here, right? When I reach for you emotionally, right? When I make a, an attempt to connect with you, there's an inherent risk that I won't be met or I'll be met with intensity. Um, let's just use the example. You reached out to me for an interview, yeah. right? And so in that reaching out, there's a possibility that there's a risk inherent in that, that you'll be rejected or that you'll be ignored, right? And then when the connection's made, then there's a risk of deeper connection. And with deeper connection, there's a risk of losing that connection, right? So inherent in all interactions that we're having with people, there is this dance that's occurring. And so for those of us that want to better get to know ourselves and maybe develop a new style, we first get to know, well, what is my style of connecting? What happens in me as I'm reaching for or waiting for somebody to reach back to me or being in connection with another? Then we get to know that. And then, okay, well, in those moments where I notice my anxiousness coming up or my impulse to pull away or turn away or not connect, can I be with the feeling of that? And then can I explore connecting a little and then doing whatever it is that helps me to feel um, settled inside, right? So it's the beginning of that exploration is what I would yeah. say. I hear you. I think the problem people are facing is the shame that 
they can't go there. Mm-hmm. That you know, for example, you know, people of our gender, men, mm-hmm. let's say in dating with women or, or just making friends, is this like false bravado of like reaching out and unconsciously needing that secure attachment, but then not being able to go there because you don't want to feel like a bitch. You're just like, yeah. I ain't no bitch. I'm not going to yeah. allow myself to feel vulnerable or feel like I need this person's connection that yeah. we're automatically rejecting feeling that space. And that's a protection mechanism. And, and that is intelligent, man. Yeah. Like the thing, the shame comes from a negative judgment, right? Certain elements of shame are useful in social situations because they keep us from hurting each other. But the kind of shame you're talking about, it oftentimes paralyzes us, right? And the way that I help myself to manage those kinds of things or to deal with that is by looking for the intelligence in the behavior. So like not getting close is really fucking intelligent because then you don't have to experience the pain of that closeness being severed, right? Keeping distance, but staying connected. That's a really fucking good strategy for having some connection, but also being in control and making sure that there isn't that pain. So, I mean, when we can start to see that intelligence, recognize the intelligence in it, that's the first point where there's an, an opportunity for an opening, an opening for something new, right? But we don't have to do something new. There's no reason, and let's use you for an example, there's no reason you need to change unless it serves you, unless it's useful to you to change, right? Otherwise, stay the way you are. My Buddhist teacher would say to me, just own who you are. You don't have to change. You don't have to be different. I never heard that take before. Just be who you are. Be accepting of who. I think when people, because I'm one of those people who, you know, is searching for complete freedom, mentally, whatever, that's mm-hmm. my identity. Mm-hmm. But that's such a subjective illusion. Like, is. what is that person? Yeah. Who is that healed person that we're all imagining to be? Mm-hmm. It's just an illusion. So what you're saying is, is correct in my eyes that mm-hmm. it's so subjective in terms of who we want to be what we want to do that it just depends on exactly as you said, just our intention of being like, I can be this way and that's, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and from that point of acceptance, when I can accept myself, then there's really truly a possibility of me exploring what it would be like to be different. Right. I can start to think, Hmm. Okay. Well, if I accept me this way, is this meeting my needs? It is. And is there another way I can meet my needs? Right. And that's, that's the the cool question when that comes up is like, Oh, what is a different way for me to meet my needs? Maybe I'll try this other way. What's that like? That feels messy. That's new. That's unfamiliar. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then, Oh, wait, I don't feel as stressed. Maybe I'll try that again. I think where my head goes a little confused about this is the line between accepting ourselves and causing harm. Mm. Like, what's that line? Where you could feel like, you know, if you have a protection mechanism where you, know, you avoid romantic situations where you detract or mm-hmm. you say something mean, what's that line between accepting yourself as you are and also trying not to cause harm to other people? Well, I think... Um... It's a good question, man. I mean, 
we don't want to justify I, I my morals say you know when i'm really aware of me and i'm aware of the impact that i might have on you then i'm intentional with my behavior right um it's almost impossible for me to do something that's intentionally causing harm when i'm aware but what does that look like well if i know that if i punch you it hurts you know unless i'm in threat of my life i'm not going to do that no need to do it yeah you know um i think the line's different for all of us and our moral values are going to be different yeah. right you know so but I don't, I don't want our listeners to think that I'm suggesting that we just accept all of our behavior, whether you know, even the stuff that can be sometimes really mean. I think it's important for us to notice where that intelligently comes from, right? Like it comes from like us trying to meet our own needs in some way or another. Is that the most functional? No, it's probably. I think you're just, you're just trying to remove the vibration of shame. Yes, yes. So that we can change the pattern, but it, we begin with. Like just acceptance of it being what it is. You know, it's like, well, I pull away when people get close. Okay. I still really want to be close. So what can we, okay, so let's use that example. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're someone who has, what's the word? Uh, avoidant. Avoidant, avoidant yeah. attachment because, you know, it was too much for you to feel close to your parents, the kids that hurt too much, you get, get abandoned. Mm-hmm. If you're in that position, you want to start opening up to vulnerability, to having secure connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it's a complicated question. What are the steps you can take to to move from that point of awareness, saying, "Okay, I want to create this new mold for myself, mm-hmm. where my nervous system isn't doing this avoidance." Mm-hmm. How can I take that dive into that? And I'll, yeah. I'll extend a, extend a bit because in today's day and age, what's frustrating to me in this Western therapy approach is just like replace a thought, replace a belief. It's like what to me i've always yeah. like what the, what the fuck is that like yeah. you can't just think you're out of this yeah. shit that you're told you know just believe this instead it's, it's so true man. your nervous system it doesn't it doesn't know anything to do with that belief so yeah yeah thinking our way through it isn't going to work unfortunately we know we have enough data to know that now um and what i'll say is great we have this awareness right we want to start we got to practice if i want to learn how to ride a bicycle i got to practice falling off the bike then I got to practice riding it. If I want to learn how to play basketball, I've got to practice fumbling with a ball and figuring out how to get my coordination so that I can bounce the ball first. Yep. Then I'm going to start playing with advanced movement or just movements with the ball. And then I'll eventually get to a point where I can do advanced movements and all sorts of things, right? So in order to get there, I can do a little bit of dribbling on my own. I can start to figure those things out. Then I need to watch people and I'm going to emulate them, right? But eventually I need help. I need somebody who's an expert that can walk me through it, that can put me in situations where they're hard enough for me, but not so hard that I get overwhelmed and I can't do it. What does that look like? An expert walking you through it? Well, it looks like an expert, like it looks like being in relationship with somebody whose sole objective is to support you with being in relationship with them. So that would be somebody that practices some sort of therapeutic work. Um, Attachment-based would be ideal. And that kind of a person would be skilled at paying attention to what happens in the relational field, we might call it. But as 
as you start to become connected with the therapist, or let's just say you and I are doing this just for the sake of conversation, yep. right? So like, as you start to get connected to me, I start to notice that we're connected. I might create an opportunity for there to be a really micro, like a teeny tiny little rupture in our connection, and then create a, a situation where we can have a repair from that. So that you get to feel what it feels like to have that thing that all, almost always happens happen, but also do it differently. I think what you're saying, you emphasize kind of a micro. Correct. Why? It's small. Because when it's small, it's manageable. And when it's manageable, you're, you're conscious. You're with it. Because when it's not manageable, your system will kick into overdrive and your thinking mind is less present. That's, what da that's what's dangerous about the breathwork stuff you're mentioning is I see people just... Yeah. I look, I feel their energy. I'm just like, you are not ready for this. No. You're fully in a, a massive piece of your trauma. That's going to, like, you're going to possibly traumatize yourself. Plus, like, mm -hmm. fuck up your nervous system. Like, what you're saying is, is so true. Because I've, I've had, you know, I have family members who are still stuck in, in trauma, all that. And they're like, I want to do, you know, mushrooms and do, yeah. uh, halt breath work. I'm like, please, God, no. <laughs> At most, do a tiny microdose with a smack experiencing, experiencing an expert. Yeah. Like, it's such a dangerous game. I've been there. Yeah. I've done it. It's not fun. Yeah. Uh, well, I agree. And it's, it's a, it's reassuring to hear you say that, man. It really is. Because most I mean, people I'm 24 are too. Everyone my age is just like, I know. I'm going to do all this crazy stuff. No. You're ahead. You're ahead <laughs> of the game. I can tell you that right now. Um, and, and ahead of the game in a world where the world's telling you something different. And and it's, it's a really beautiful place to be, especially for your own personal work as you're exploring this stuff in your own. Peter Levine uses this word. Um, he's a scientist first. So I think that's probably where this comes from for him. He uses a word called titration. And it's, it's a word that's used to, to reference incremental increases when we're combining chemicals together you do it really slowly and incrementally and that prevents like big explosions from two caustic substances mixing together yeah do you did you in school ever make one of those volcanoes you take yeah or what's elephant toothpaste you ever do that or like put it's like a massive foam explosion yeah sure something like that yeah exactly or right, coconut, so, uh, mentos and a coke yeah mentos and a coke is a good example too yeah exactly right so baking soda and vinegar will cause that like huge fizzing kind of reaction if you pour them together really quickly it's almost like an explosion but if you do it drop by drop by drop it fizzes and then it goes away then it fizzes then it goes away and eventually it's neutralized that's what we want to do in our bodies because big experiences are like little explosions or big explosions inside of ourselves and we don't have capacity in our thinking mind at that moment the way that our body functions just it it'll divert blood flow for the stress response it's like i'm really stressed right now I'm really stressed. Okay, I don't need my thinking. I don't need my executive function. Yeah, it doesn't even work at that point. Yeah, there's no reason. Like, if I'm thinking, oh, no, there's a tiger about to bite me. I need to run. I'm not running. Instead, instinct kicks in, and I just run. Yeah. Then I think about, like, holy shit, there was a tiger, and I just ran. I'm so glad I ran. Right? Instinct. But that instinct shows up in conversation. The instinct shows up in personal development. That instinct shows up everywhere. And we're not educated about it as humans for the most part especially practitioners. This is why I started the training that I run. Yeah. I, I, I went to, I went to Ivy League college. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that show. I'm just saying that to make this point that mm -hmm. you have supposedly the smartest people of our nation in one group together. No harm, but they're probably the dumbest people I've ever met because they're used to the intelligence as an excuse to use their thinking constantly to avoid what they don't want to feel. Yeah. So they have literal zero EQ. Yeah zero street smarts, all stuck in, in mass trauma, and all these people are going to be our next 
generation's powerful people. I, I was there just like, that's why I got so uh, dis, uh, frustrated towards the end of it. I was yeah. like, you, you people are, or this is going to be not fun. So I'm curious yeah. what you have to say about intelligence as a scapegoat towards feeling. I think, to your point, I think that what we have is a systems issue, not an individual issue. And I think that those people that you're referring to absolutely exist, and that's that's a it's an unfortunate it's an unfortunate truth about the world that we live in. Um, but I think the problem's not with the individual; it's with the system that's trained the individual, yeah. right? So I started. Rewards. Yeah, it rewards it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. I started a nonprofit foundation. It's called the Truth Foundation with a friend of mine, David Gonzalez, who runs the Internet Marketing Party here in Austin. He's, he's a phenomenal man. He's really an incredible human being. And um, our mission is to better understand trauma so that we can eliminate it, so we can end it forever. And we believe that it is a systems problem. We, we believe that it's a global systems problem, but it's embedded in our religious doctrine. It's embedded in our culture. It's embedded in um, politics. It's embedded in family structures and parenting and psychology field and all of it. Right? And even in Buddhism, one of the Four Noble Truths is suffering is inevitable. Right. I and I make a distinction here. I think suffering is that living memory, that which prevents us from being here and present in the moment. But I think I think pain is inevitable. It's just a part of life. Death is inevitable as a part of life. Right. But I don't think that the suffering is inevitable. I think that it is right now because of the way that we live and the way that we condition ourselves. So to this point, kind of coming back to your your thoughts in environments that reward certain kinds of performance and do the opposite. You know, they you know, Ivy league environments are not going to reward emotional intelligence. In nope. fact, they're going to eat those people apart yep. and they're gone. And it's the same in the military, but the military needs to be muted emotionally so that they can do their job. Yep. Like quite literally, they need to be the most ruthless ever. Yep. But in, in educational systems, that's not what's necessary. And in the workforce and in the world, it's not what's necessary. Uh, now, for us to be good worker bees, it's great if we just follow instructions and we don't think and we don't emote. But the difficulty is that we're humans. There's no escaping our, human, our mm -hmm. humanity. There's no escaping our emotions. No matter how good we think we are at masking them, our body will always win. Yeah, on the education system. It's not an education system. It's an indoctr indoctrination system. Yeah. You're creating slaves of the, of, the, of the capitalist world, mainly in like molding them into what they need for society to function. Just, right. There's no other way for me not to see it that way, considering that there's not a single class taught on how to love, how to live, how to you know feel. It's not even remotely discussed ever. I know. Man. And that just to anyone who is starting to experience this way of living, it just like your first, whenever you think about it, it's truly like, what the actual fuck? I know. How is how is this happening right now? I know, I know, I know, man, I know. It's, uh, and where do we begin to, to work on it, right? You know, we've got lots of people that are working on dealing with that, but um, I know, I agree. This... What, what moves the lever in your eyes? Tough question, but. Well, so I've, I've been asking myself this question a lot because of the, the foundation. You know, like with our mission being to end trauma, we're, you know, we're looking at, well, what's causing it? And most, dare I say all, um, I'll say most because I don't know um, and I don't like absolutes, but most techniques 
for helping people involve dealing with symptoms. Most healthcare does, do, is developed to deal with symptoms. There are some branches of healthcare that, that are preventative, but very few, at least here in the Western world. If we want to change the way the system functions, actually, you know, Seth Godin, I just listened to an, an interview with him with Rich Roll, and he did a phenomenal job of talking about this. How do we change a system? Well, we get the way that we change the system is by making it an obvious choice to do the thing that's going to be the thing that helps the system. Mm -hmm. And using capitalism as a means to do that is a great idea. So he presents this idea of ways that we could do that, where the market supports the thing that's actually helpful. As soon as that happens, the other thing becomes obsolete. Now he's looking at um, uh, things like uh, the health of our world, of our planet, and stuff like that when he's talking about this. But I think that the the concept or the approach applies, right? So if we make it ineffective for a person to be emotionally inept, right? So if we if we make it a need that a person has emotional capacity, if we make that a need in the um, in the workforce, for instance, eventually that'll be a thing that'll have to be trained. Right? We'll need it to function. Right now, it's not necessary. You know, so I think that would be an effective way that we could go about doing something about it. I don't think it happens by changing the school system or changing this other thing. Like those things will change on their own. It's, it's to my, my point that the, the education system trains you to be what the system needs. That's right. So if the system needs what you're talking about, then, it has, then the right. school system has to change. That's right. Change what the system needs. Yeah. Change our value system around that too, though. Right. If we think about it, right, our values as a culture doesn't we like we don't value those particular thing. We don't value emo we don't value emotional connection. But if we did, then everything would be designed around that. Do you have kids? I don't yet. Do you? Do you, do you want kids? Yeah, maybe someday. I I want them to someday, but what scares me is how the hell do I mold them into a healthy person in this fucked up world? It's such like a. a useless question because you know it makes us not want to have kids but it's also a useful well, question to then try and create a, a good template well the answer is you become the model yeah because children don't learn by what we tell them they learn by how we behave yeah there's i think that, i don't know if it's a direct quote but it's just saying that you know whatever shadow you know he'll if he gets it mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah, so how do we ensure that our children um become those agents of change, so to speak, or learn healthy relating, we model it. We do our work so that we can become the person that can just by moving in the world, teach our child to be like that. Right? like, if I'm responding with frustration or anger or short temper to every little thing that disturbs me, or if I'm disturbed by many little things, my child will learn that that's how we respond to our frustrations and will emulate that. But yeah. instead, if I'm patient and I'm kind and I'm understanding, if I'm empathetic, if I'm curious about emotions, if I express my emotions, but I'm not you know, overly out of control, then what my child will learn is, ah, that's how we manage ourselves when we're in those experiences. And so for us to get there, we need to find healthy models. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. What, what's crazy to me is is my 
So a lot of my woundings from my, my dad all love to him, but it was, it wasn't even verbal. He was a very kind, polite man, mm-hmm. but it was just observing his world, observing his way of being. Yeah. And then I downloaded, yeah. you know, so him, he's a hyper competitive, successful uh, person. So mm-hmm. he would only love himself if he was perfect in his profession. Yeah. So then I felt like, oh, I can only love myself if, if yeah. I'm perfect. If I'm getting an A plus in school. That's right. And then my identity became that. My identity literally became, yeah. I have to be this person yeah. to feel love in myself because then my dad will, will, will love me yeah. so it just it's crazy, so crazy how that how that works well and it is it's just what gets passed down to us right right we learn from watching we're we're you know we're animals yeah we mimic those things and then we carry our parents story and believe it's ours yeah right and so that's where mindset work is phenomenal or CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, you could call it that too. But, but uh, like understanding our thinking processes is useful in so much as it points to where we got those things from. Uh, framing can be really helpful while it's not necessary for us to change how we feel. But framing can influence how we feel. Why are we also checked out? Why do most of us, why are most of us not aware of those things? We're not taught to be aware and... Our environment's overwhelming. Okay. So we don't have the space to process it. I would say many of us don't know how to create the space. We don't have a model for for creating the space to manage it, to be with it. Think about it. Um, I don't know the statistic. I'm imagining you've probably heard it somewhere. The amount of information we take in in a day is similar to the amount of information or sensory input uh, our ancestors took in in a year yeah. or more yeah. or something like that. It's even crazier about around Yeah, that. I think it's yeah. more than that, yeah. Well, I don't know that our bodies have fully adapted to that change. Yeah. And so the threat is no longer a tiger or a bear or a wolf or some animal or some other tribe. The threat is the bombardment of information and, and sensory input, right? So we learn to numb ourselves so that we don't have to take it all in. When we, watch, when we look at our phones, how many advertisements do we ignore? You know, when we drive down the road, how many advertisements are we ignoring? How many things are, are vying for our attention at any given moment? Mm-hmm. You know, and, well, a lot. And what do we do about that? We learn to omit taking in certain things, selective input, right? Yeah. But we still, to do that, we got to numb ourselves a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. what bugs me or confuses me is the instinct to avoid that we all have yeah it's a constant perpetual instinct to not go into the places we don't want to feel always well it's intelligent man you know if it's overwhelming if that shit hurt or that was hard why would we want to feel that yeah how do you switch that mindset i think the most effective way to bypass all this stuff is to willingly be with whatever arises for someone who's very averted to that lifestyle what's the first step is it just awareness just to breaking that disillusionment well it's familiarizing yourself with what it with being with those feelings so when you look like you exercise regularly you Mm -hmm. exercise fairly regularly 
when you first started exercising, I don't know how long ago that was, there was a period of healing that takes place after you exercise. And there's a lot of pain. Like if you go two or three weeks without hitting it hard, when you go back to exercise, it's going to be really uncomfortable. Like you don't want to move your body the next like two or three days, especially if you go really hard with your legs. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. So, but when you do it regularly, the amount of pain and difficulty that follows a workout's different than it was the first couple of times. Yeah. So in a similar way, that happens because you're more familiar with it. Your your body's accustomed to it and you're more in practice with it, right? And it starts to adapt. When it comes to turning towards these things, there's a period of adjustment. So we want to have that support with us who can help us to get through that period to then begin to turn yeah. towards it and to feel it. So I'm just picturing someone who's just become aware of a behavior they have or a trigger or a trauma. And when they start tuning in, the trigger is so fucking intense that all they want to do is go out. How does that person start, you know, releasing that? That's a good question. And I like how you're, I like how you're framing this too. So when turning towards ourselves in a moment of overwhelm is too much, the best thing we can do is stop turning towards it. How do you healthily do that? Because most people, most people will do that automatically and then start you know, reaching for a drink or watching porn or mm -hmm. any kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. What's like a healthy, effective way to do that without getting into bad habits? Well, I think the, the beginning is to notice the habit and not change it. Right? So notice that I was overwhelmed and then I went and I got drunk or I went and I looked at porn. Yeah. Right? And we noticed that for a while this is how I'm dealing with my overwhelm. Then we start to notice before we're completely overwhelmed that we're a little bit triggered or maybe very triggered. We still use the, the whatever the strategy is to deal with the overwhelm, but maybe it's, we catch it a little earlier and then progressively over time, we're able to catch it before it gets to be so much that we have to turn away from it. And so the objective would be to catch it when it's not overwhelming, but when it's there and it's triggering and to notice, holy shit, I'm triggered and I'm headed towards overwhelm. What do I need? And each of us needs something different in those moments. But then now we're in that spot where we can do something new. Yeah. But in the beginning, we're not going to notice it there. We're going to notice it when we notice it, which usually is too late. Yeah. Most of us are disconnected. We don't even notice it. It's like, no, I just feel compelled to go drink tonight. Yeah. I have a weird brain. Maybe it's just me, but I got to a point where I can't escape. Can't escape from the sensation. Yeah. It just, like, I, I cannot, it just is. I, I cannot not be aware of it in its full entirety. Mm -hmm. No matter what I do, I can, it, I'll always have to be with it. I have to, but I can't escape it. It mm -hmm. just, I'll be so aware of it that I'll, I'll notice the sensation. I can't do anything to escape it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a, Familiar well, things for, for, for you or, or for people. What is this that we're talking about? So maybe okay. we could dig right. in a little deeper. All right. Uh, let's say, you know, so I, my biggest trigger is I have abandonment issues from my mom mm -hmm. uh, growing up. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in a relationship and let's say the person hasn't answered the phone for a while, mm -hmm. I don't know where they are. Mm -hmm. I feel myself being, you know, in a room, not all, three in the morning, my mom's not home. Mm -hmm. And that like. That overwhelm. Overwhelm feeling. Mm -hmm. I can't do anything but sit with it. Like, right. So there's no getting away. Right. And so in those moments, 
What do we need in those moments yeah. to be connected to someone? What if there's no someone? That's hard. Mm -hmm. Then. How do you, is there a way to shift it to yourself in that moment? Or is it impossible based on the nervous system? Well, once that, once we're really overwhelmed, then it's a matter of, we need to direct our attention outside of our body, away from the feeling of overwhelm. Because the more we focus on the feeling of overwhelm, the more overwhelmed we feel. So in some moments we turn towards it, in others we turn outside and away from it. So in a moment like that, we would pause. I mean, hopefully there'd be somebody there, but maybe you make a little sticky note for yourself or you have a little reminder on your phone or a place that you can go to find like cues or suggestions. Um, and you stand up, you look around your room. Like for instance, we can do it right now. And those of you who are listening or watching can do it at home. Just take a look around and, and look at the things that catch your attention and pick out some things that have different colors. Now in this room, I'm going to choose the color blue because we can find a number of things that are blue, right? And I'm going to look for a couple different things in here. And I'm going to look around. I'm going to notice the gear and the lights. And I'm going to notice the floor. And I'm going to notice these awesome sound panels behind me, <laughs> right? And if you do the same thing and you take a look around and you notice those things in the room try it out with me man just take a pause and notice the different textures the different objects and then notice what's different inside does anything change it's more of a, a outward energy yeah and does your body feel safe it does it yeah oh, okay yeah so i wouldn't I wouldn't have used that word unless that was a word you chose to use, but you're, you're using the word safe. That's great. And so what we might notice is that, and those of you who are listening might notice that you yawned or, you know, you felt like settledness happen. Some of, some of you might notice that there's more energy in your body, you feel more energized. So it could be either way, but if we're really heightened by taking our awareness and putting it outside and looking around. We can even say out loud three to five different things that we notice that are blue, that are green, that are yellow, that are red. We want to keep doing that until our body starts to, to soften a little bit because there is a threat response happening, but there's no visible threat. So if I can engage my neck muscles and I can actually look around and I don't actually see a visible threat, my body starts to to relax itself. I don't, I'm not thinking my way there. Then I can stand up, I can go for a little bit of a walk, I could be outside, leave my technology device inside, I can listen to the sounds around me, I could smell the smells around me. And that starts to give my body necessary cues that the, that the threat or the danger is not present around me. Are you always doing that? Hmm. No. Just when you, you feel a little? I'll do it from time to time. Like it's kind of become a a practice where I'm like, I bring more awareness or presence to the things around me. Um, taking in more of the sounds. Like I can hear the sounds in the other room right now, like right through the wall. And I'm imagining that's, there's just a slight delay and that's probably the sound that I'm hearing. Right. Yeah. I can hear the sound of the fan and one of the lights. And from time to time, I'll kind of oscillate my attention back and forth to these things. Right. And that keeps my system more settled here and present in the moment. 
But when we're feeling overwhelmed, the thought is stimulating our imagination or it's stimulating a memory. And our body can't differentiate, can't tell whether that memory is happening right now or it's from the past because there's the triggers happening. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is create differentiation. Like that trigger, is it right now or is it the past? I can't tell. It's right now. It has to be right now. It's happening right now. I'm, I'm alone and I'm afraid, right? Abandonment is fear while alone. I'm alone and I'm afraid. I don't know if anyone's coming back. I'm alone and I'm afraid, right? So it's that fear, that terror that comes. And in the moment when we don't hear back from the person, when they don't respond to us, like there's that terror that starts to come up. Is it from right now? No. It's right now is triggering the memory from that time. And What's your take on inner child work? Like imagining that moment as a kid. I think we want to be careful with imagining moments that were traumatic. Okay. Because going back into that stimulates our body to remember it. So we could, with a trained professional, go back into that moment, remember pieces of it, feel our body here in the present moment, and and work on helping to kind of tease apart the memory from reality right now. And a somatic experiencing practitioner would be a really great person to work with for that because they're phenomenal at that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, if they're well-trained um, and well-practiced. But that's really essentially what we want to do. Because what's happening is the body can't tell. It can't tell there's a difference. And that is trauma. You know? It's like, no, I'm still fucking terrified. And I feel that terror every time that, that something stimulates me in the way that it did back then. Is there, is there a feeling you haven't mastered? Oh, man. There's all sorts of feelings I haven't mastered. <laughs> uh, one specific one that you still have a hard time well, being with. You know, it, it depends on the circumstance. You know, the relationship stuff comes up and I feel overwhelmed or I'll feel frightened. Same. That's my, my kryptonite. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when there's... Like, if I feel threatened or in a... You know, in a relationship dynamic, there's a couple different things that might happen inside me, but sometimes I might become paralyzed and not be able to say the thing I need to say. And that comes from some really intense experiences that I had as a child. Um, and each time it happens, I learn more about myself and I can turn towards it in a new way. I can explore it. I can kind of pull apart where it's coming from when it happened. So what I like to do is I like to say... Oh, this feeling that I'm feeling is just like that one time when I'm, I think I'm upset about right now and what you're doing to me, but actually it has nothing to do with you. You're just the stimulus. What I'm feeling is coming from within. That, that way of communicating completely changes the game in a relationship yeah. when you're both fully owning what's coming up for you in the moment yeah. and not blaming, not projecting. To me, it's, it's quite literally the only way, I mean, yeah. it's a strict rule, but you can have a healthy mm -hmm. union. Yeah, well, and both people got to be willing to play that game yeah. together, you know. Um, it's, it's, so, it's really not easy because when we're triggered, we believe that the trigger is real because it's real within us. Yeah. And we believe it's caused by the other because the other did something and then we felt a certain way. Right? And teasing that apart is really fucking hard. And it's even harder when we're triggered. 
like one of the things that I like to practice when I'm triggered and I by all no means get it right all the time is when you did that thing, I had this fucking response and it's, I'm having a really hard time right now because I want to blame you for this feeling that I'm having. And I realize that it's not your fault and it's really hard for me to separate the two things right now. So I just kind of narrate the thing that's happening, which gives me enough distance from blaming the other that I can begin to analyze what I'm feeling and also stay with the feeling. Yeah. Right. So I'm not trying to push it away. Yeah. I've, I've always thought about what's the best way to go about dealing with resurfacing trauma in a relationship. Uh, obviously, the worst way is just to ignore and project. Mm-hmm. But I kind of realized that you can't fix your partner at all. But I kind of realized you kind of maybe should hold their hand while they're walking through the fire. That if they're yeah. feeling a certain way, if they're feeling that trigger, don't fix them. Don't put the energy to fix them. Just say, I'm with you. That's it. I feel you. That's it. Yeah. Hold your hand. Yeah. It's okay. I really like the analogy that you that you're using and the words that you're using. They're holding their hand through the fire and walking through the fire. I like that because it can feel that way sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. And in relationship, that's really what we need. It's like the story I told earlier, you know, like I'm here with you is very different than you're going to be okay. Yeah. Because you might not feel okay. Yeah. And when I say you're going to be okay, it's about me. It's not about you. Yeah. It's about me wanting you to feel better. But when I'm with you, objectively, I can say, yeah, it's fucking terrifying. And I'm right here with you. Yeah. And I can acknowledge the realness of what you're feeling. And the other, the other, another thing for us in relationship is whether I agree with why you're feeling what you're feeling or not, I'm acknowledging the truth of your feeling. Yeah, big time. And that's fucking hard. Because when I want to be right about what you're saying, I'm going to argue with you. But if I can get my rightness, my need to be right out of the way, I can stay connected. 100%. And that's a fucking hard thing to do. Yeah. Just that ego, I realize that ego loves justifying how you feel. So if you're, you know, triggered and you think that the person caused it, that voice just like coming up with a yeah. bit, especially the smarter you are, yeah, the more you're going to come up with like 50 creative ideas to blame the person. That's right. In that moment, I kind of realized that you just, don't obviously don't shame the voice don't don't punch it but just, just try and connect with them just mm-hmm. try and, and and feel love mm-hmm. beyond that that yeah. voice yapping at you sometimes i'll acknowledge it too I'll, I'll say you know i'm creating a huge fucking story right now about what you're thinking and uh, so you're that you're that honest yeah. what you're thinking why you're doing that and i'm and i don't want to live in that story would you be willing to share with me what you're thinking like i'll actually say things like that because how else am I going to know? And how else do I interrupt it? There's a really great book that talks about the neuroscience of brain stuff. Um, uh, It's called No Self, No Problem. Dude, love it. Because this neuroscientist talks about Buddhism. But what he does is he breaks down the different hemispheres of the brain. And the first part of the book is wonderful. He talks about a study that they did on on brains. um, With uh, You'll have to read it. But essentially, the way the left and the right hemisphere of the brain function... They have two very different, unique purposes. The left to catalog information and to make sense of things. But the interesting thing is that the left hemisphere of the brain will make meaning regardless. Mm-hmm. 90%, 95% of the time it's wrong. It doesn't yeah. know, it doesn't know where that it's just correlating information. So we believe that it's true. So we believe our perception of the world is 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 the world and it's false but we don't know that. And so that suspending interpretation and being with what is, 
is um, is vital to to relationship. It's vital to self awareness. It's vital to all those things. Yeah. Another question I often think about is how tough it is to be in a very loving relationship to yourself when all that voice wants to do is destroy you. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. What's your mm-hmm. your take on how to how to love yourself through that through that barrage of insecure thoughts or, or thoughts that just don't serve you? Because if you know, it, no matter what people say, you know the analogies about just like it doesn't exist, illusion. Mm-hmm. It still feels like it's you. It still will feel like this is mm-hmm. part. It is part of you talking to yourself. Yeah, it is. What's it? How do you go about remaining in a state of self love while you're having thoughts that you really don't like? Maybe you don't love yourself in that moment. Maybe it's just to be honest about it. Like, yeah. I'm really not loving myself right now. Like, I'm really angry sure. at myself right now. I hate myself right now. And part of me is watching this happen. Can I connect to the part of me that's 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 neutral, that's watching? Right? Because then that, that, that's, I mean, and that's what Buddhist teaching talks about, right? Can we become the witness? Who's watching you beat yourself up? Yeah. Right? In the moment, we can't often do that. But if we can, if we can get ourselves one step removed, then we can name it. And that's part of my strategy with the narrator. Like I'm noticing that I'm really beating myself up right now. I'm not being beaten up. I is not being beaten up, right? I is the one that's noticing. But there is that internal struggle that's happening where there are these negative thoughts, there are these judgments, and then there's the shame, and then there's the feelings, the emotions that come up with it, right? But if I can create just a little bit of distance, then I can I can be with that and go, wow, I'm really unhappy. Yeah, it's a awareness is so powerful. You know, when you I'm trying to connect this point to this, but you know, when you walk into a church, you see Jesus on the cross. That's the universal symbol of suffering that opens a heart. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you witness suffering, your heart opens. But then when you're suffering yourself, your heart doesn't open. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you don't have that separation. Mm-hmm. Where I think when you have the observation of yourself and you're looking at yourself in a state of pain. That's when that part of you can wake up to be like, oh, man, I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. compassion comes out. Rather than just being so attached to him, so that's in it, it. Yeah. you can't think, you can't have that compassion for yourself. That's right, yeah. And that's a thing that happens with training over time. It's not an easy thing to do. No, it sucks. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, man. It's uh, it's hard to have that distance sometimes. And there are biological reasons for that. There's like real science behind why it's hard. Yeah. Which is why I say it's like exercise, only it's conditioning at the nervous system level. Right. So how do we change our impulses? Well, geez, we gotta set up the right conditions so those impulses are different. Yeah. Because we can't think our body to be different. The only part of our autonomic nervous system that we can control is our breathing. Everything else is automatic. Yeah. And the only way to change those automatic things is through conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. So we can condition ourselves and and that'll start to change. So it's like, I want to create the right conditions for change to happen. When I work with people, the, the objective of my work is to help to support them to create the right conditions in their life so that what they want is an inevitable byproduct of that. It's a thing that just happens. It's not th- something that they effort their way into creating. It's a thing that simply occurs. It's like, yeah. wow, your life's changing. I didn't do anything, man. Well, you you did, but it's not effortful. Yeah, let's focus on that because my way of living is just not like that at all no i know it's not mm-hmm. great i'm one of those yeah i'm not exactly the david Go- david goggins navy seal type but i do i'm very forceful i mean i'm not i i even though i'm aware it's negative i'm part of that 
hyper masculine role where I'll just I'll force my way into doing things. Don't want to get in an ice bath. Get I don't want to work out. I'll work. Out. I don't want to work. I'm that kind of person. Mm -hmm. But I know it's fucking me up. So it's that way of of going about healing is so different. That I'm curious as to like my brain just can't wrap my my head around mm -hmm. how someone can get to that place mm -hmm. without forcing things. Yeah. Just, well, you're how old? Twenty four. Twenty four. So you're in a period of your life where I think it's important that you do test your limits. Mm -hmm. Like right now is, is a great time for you to push yourself to figure out where your edges are. But then the key is that once you figure out where your edges are to back off from those edges just a little bit so that you can maintain that energy consistently throughout the rest of your lifetime. Yeah. You listen to Jordan Peterson stuff. He talks about that. Man. Like, yeah. you know, he's like, go for it when you're younger. And, I, and I'm and I'm all for going for it when you're younger. Yeah. And then finding the balance is where we can really expand how much we can go for. Yeah. Like Goggins is useful in his field. Mm -hmm. You know, like as a soldier, you want to be as absolutely ruthless as possible. And Goggins is a he's he's the pinnacle of that. Yeah. Like that dude's incredible for that. Yeah. For being in a soft, connected, loving relationship or raising a family, eh, it just doesn't doesn't translate. Yeah. yeah, and so we just want to we want to consider our the lifestyle that we're living. What is the thing that's going to support me the most to have that fruitful lifestyle that I want? And for somebody like you to think twenty years ahead, too, like where do you want to be in twenty years from now? And then what are the steps necessary to to get you to keep you on that path? Yeah. so to speak but when i think about it the best i feel is when i feel most softened into my heart after mm -hmm. long meditation after being in a state of loving experience yeah. i feel the most manly then yeah when i'm after the gym after the ice bath it's just ego it, i don't yeah. i don't feel like a man then yeah i may have the image the egoistic image of oh i'm not like this uh, uh archetype mm -hmm. but in those moments of like loving groundedness where you're just your nervous system's in a good place you yep. feel your feet yeah. That's when, I think that's where real power comes from. Yeah. Well, and I would agree. I think that is where power comes from. Um, so then it's just a matter of having enough of a reward system in place. You know, that reward system being in place so that uh, it keeps reinforcing that positive, that behavior that you want more of. Yeah. yeah. Right? So when, when my mom died, I kept having this dream of her looking sickly all the time mm -hmm. same dynamics you look sickly and i've i've read books by carl young kind of mm -hmm. talking about this stuff and it was it could have been reflective of the feminine in me mm -hmm. saying i'm very hurt yeah you know because when when she passed away that was like a unconscious uh, just having that soften me just having that yeah. attachment soften me yeah and then it was gone a dream showed me mm-hmm how the fuck can I do this for myself? Yeah. How can I solve myself without needing a feminine figure? Yeah. As a man, it's difficult. It, it is. What are ways you would go about it for, for men to soften? The way that the thing that's helped me the most is having a man in my life that helped me to learn what it was to be a man and also to be softer in moments. Right. So I chose a mentor that could do that for me or mentors. I've chosen many mentors yeah. to do that for me because my father was not, my father's a wonderful man and growing up, he, you know, I didn't really, I didn't learn what that was yeah. to be that. So to have, to have a, a model in my life currently, <laughs> you know, that current model, that, that's what I've chosen. That's one of the ways that I've chosen to do that. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of in your, 
in a moment where you feel like just yourself beyond the mm-hmm. image, what are practices you do when you feel like I should soften right now? Mm-hmm. I'm going too into this extreme. My body's calling me to soften. Well, the first thing that I do is I catch myself. I'm getting tense. Can I soften my muscles? So when you asked me the question, I noticed that I was tightening in my core and I was tightening in my left leg. And I relaxed the muscle in my core and I relaxed the muscle in my left leg. I'll soften the back of my tongue. Right. So when I soften the back of my tongue, this whole center part of my body starts to soften. I'll pay attention to my thoughts. Are my thoughts creating more agitation in me? Can I interrupt the flow of thoughts and redirect them? Right. So I'm paying attention to all the different parts of me. Right? There's my body, there are, and then there's my thinking. Right. Not hitting a half an hour breath work. No. <laughs> no, I'm not hitting a half an hour breath work. I will I mean I'll do cold immersion and, and heat and contrast stuff like that sometimes, yeah. but you know, that's that doesn't help me to remain calm in stressful situations. Yeah. yeah. I mean it might help a little bit because my body's more conditioned to be with stress, but it's that's not going to move the needle. It's the inner work, right? It's the like I can I can I can be with this right now, and and I know like when I start to get closer to feeling overwhelmed, I know that I can look around, I can feel the weight of my body where I am, I can attend to my breathing, you know, not do some box breathing or something like that, but I can slow my breathing down a little mm-hmm. bit. I can take some some slightly longer breaths. And that's going to help me to manage whatever stress I'm feeling in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You're, I think you're talking to uh, the opposite of what the symptoms needed nowadays, which is when we think I need to slow down, I need to soften, our brain goes to extremes that we talked mm-hmm. about. Hit of something, mm-hmm. you know, quick breath work, mm-hmm. just like extreme uh, consciousness shifters mm-hmm. versus the answer to soften is just to kind of surrender to the experience where yep. you feel your body mm-hmm. relax mm-hmm. And that really does involve surrendering what's your take on the role of surrendering to whatever is in the healing process it's a paramount yeah yeah and we got to trust ourselves enough to let go right so i, I have, i've over the years developed a, a relationship with myself that allows me to trust myself to let go into those moments. Like I got me when that stuff happens. And if I don't, I have somebody I can reach to that does have me in those moments. Do you believe in a higher power to use the thought of a higher power in, the, in those moments? Is that not where you, you kind of think in, in those? I was raised and conditioned to believe in, in a higher power. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I don't know. It's a question mark in my mind. Mm-hmm. So in moments of like deep distress, I might have a conversation with myself or God or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that may help me feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't have a practice of prayer and regular focus of something Just outside. Curious, cause that's often tied to surrender. That's what yeah, yeah, it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, I think my work with psychedelics taught me about surrender because I had no choice. Yeah. Um, or else it gets ugly. That's right. It gets real ugly. Yeah. Um, but, and my experiences of trauma, you know, I was in a group home as a child, as a teenager, and I had no control over that. I was beaten unconscious multiple times and I had no control over that. And there was a point where I lost my freedom and I just, I had to surrender to what was happening. I did, there was no other choice. I could fight it, but fighting it didn't work. 
So did this the surrender came out of trauma? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I learned it in that. Like it was the only way. There was no other way. Um, and I wouldn't have so I wouldn't have said that at the time. At the time, you know, immediately after that, I turned to drugs and alcohol, and that that was my mechanism for numbing the. How did you get off of them? Um, I became aware of the impact they were having on me, um, and gradually, slowly stopped doing it. I smoked for 16, 17 years, something like that, cigarettes. Oh, good. And, and weed, drank all the time. And and then it stopped serving me. When I dealt with the thing that that thing was helping me deal with, I no longer needed it. It just made me feel disoriented. Yeah. you know That's what I have confusion around, is that concept of we're always an addict. I, I don't know if that's true because... I, mean, I, I was in that box. I, I used to be a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I loved Xanax, uppers. So that, was mm-hmm. my, that was my shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that. Yeah, <laughs> your your system's moving a little faster. Mine moves slower, and I prefer yeah. downers. But, I, I love yeah. uppers. Love them. Yeah, yeah my, my can, nervous system likes that. <laughs> so again, it, it ties back to that trauma growing yeah, up. Like, I was only valuable for how smart I was. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it was got to stay more, up, up more, yeah. here as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But what got me away from them was I stopped doing them. Then I got then the Porn came up, sex addiction, all that stuff sort of was replaced, and then it became ice baths, eating crazily. It just always changed until I was like, "What what the hell am I avoiding? What can't I sit with? What can't I be with? What am I? What do I need a connection for?" That's it. And then once that I realized that, like right now, I have, I can have a shot or whatever. I don't do it because it's like, why? I I just don't feel. I don't feel like it. It's such a different process than than uh, what it was before. That's how it is for me with alcohol nowadays. I, I could have a, I could have some drinks and it's no big deal. I don't think about it either. It's not a big deal. Like, like I could get high or I could, you know, I could take a psychedelic. Sure, but I, you know, I don't need it. Yeah, it takes me out of myself. It takes me away from my sense of presence. It used to be that I thought it brought me more into connection with my sense of presence. But why, now, why is that? It's so strange. I'm the same way. Where I used it in that way, but now it, it takes me so much further away. Yeah, it just disconnects you from myself. I don't at know. A deep level. I, I I contemplate that sometimes. I think it's that I was so disconnected from myself that feeling meant I needed some sort of substance to feel, um, like to feel alive, yeah. or to not feel the pain, right? But as I got used to being with the feelings on the inside that substance clouds my ability to feel. Yeah. So, cause I'm not as trying to escape the pain anymore. I just got hit with a new way to, to move the conversation is, you know, we use substances to make ourselves feel more worthy of connection. Mm-hmm. It puts on a mask. It, it numbs our insecurities. So what I was curious to say is, is connection, even connection or not authentic? Yeah. Well, Circling back to um, we're talking about connection, whether if showing up inauthentically is, is meeting your needs correctly. Yeah, so I think it depends on who you ask. Do we ask a neuroscientist or are we are we talking, you know, subjectively? Because it's meeting a need. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, is it meeting the underlying need? Maybe, maybe not. Right. Most of it's a strategy to meet the need. Right. But it's hard to know. Right. But there's probably a neurochemical, a biochemical response that's happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because for me, when I was at my lowest was when I was most popular. Mm-hmm. 
where I was just putting on a mask to seduce women to to seem powerful to men. Mm-hmm. It wasn't me, and I felt more lonely than I did when I was alone for basically four months straight, figuring something out. Another story, but yeah. I felt more lonely than I ever did. That's why I asked that question. Is that I feel like a lot of people do feel that way. Mm-hmm. So, what exactly is the process to start moving towards authenticity, especially in the way we show up with each other? Well, we got to start with being authentic with ourselves. What's that look, is, what does that look like? Well, it's number one. It's like, what am I feeling right now? What's really true inside of me? Yeah. Am I angry? Am I ashamed? Do I hate myself um, in this moment? Do I believe something negative about you or about somebody else? You know, like what's real for me right now? Uh, can I come into contact with reality is what was what we say in the training I run. You know, it's like this moment, can I remove the barriers to what's happening inside of me? Can I make a distinction between the emotions that I'm experiencing, the sensations that I'm experiencing in my body and the thoughts that I'm having? Like, can I tell the difference between those things? Right? So it all starts with me. Right? Yeah. And then from there, I can start to get curious about my social interactions, my interactions with others. Like I can bring more awareness to to all the different it's pieces. So it's a different approach because the online community, the dating world, or, or any fr- most of the dating world that I have frustration with is saying, it's kind of a fake it till you make it. It's, yes. You're saying, like, put on put on the mask, show up as this person trying to create. Mm-hmm. versus to me it's like that's playing the game right it, it's saying the right lines yeah. having the right smile having the right flirtatious pickup line yeah. but what i realize is you have to become the game mm-hmm. you got to be that energy of just fully showing up at, as yourself yeah and then things will just start start coming but getting there is actually the game. it's not about going to chase yeah. women or, or chasing friends to make you just got to get to a place where you feel that you can show up as yourself yeah. then all that stuff you actually need on serve you will start running to you i agree with that it's for a long time i thought i needed to construct an image i thought branding was building an image around who i thought i wanted to be and and all those things and what i've realized is that as i as i became comfortable with being myself who i was did for me what i thought those other things would yeah you know yeah yeah it's um what was the image you're making for yourself? Well, there have been a number of them <laughs> over the years. You know, it was like... What was the most harmful one? Mm. There was a period in my life where I glamorized being a drug dealer. I think that was probably the most harmful to me as a person. What's, how do you glamorize that? What, what were you telling yourself at that time? Something about it was cool. It would be... I don't know. It was the excitement or the adventure maybe mm-hmm. of that um fighting against society to make a difference things like that were parts of the story that i told myself about it like um i don't have to conform or you know i can change the system from outside of it by fighting against it yeah. fuck this world the way it is i you know like i know better i can do better you know, all lots of those different all, things. All from trauma. Yeah, all from, all from unfelt trauma. feelings. We don't right. realize how much our identities or the idea of who we think we should be is just based on what we don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. It, it just really boil, boils down to that. Yep. Yeah. Agreed, man. Agreed. How do we start becoming aware of that? That's the kind of thing I think about is when, when we're in that stage of thinking. Do you, do you see that Jonah Hill documentary on Netflix with his therapist? No. no I probably ought to watch it, though. But it's I good. So it. he, he, um, so the guy talks about how the ego creates, I think, a golden snapshot where it's just like a, a perfect image mm-hmm. that it, like, sells you on. 
to think that, that that's when this happens and life's amazing. The image that we give ourselves is this identity. Mm-hmm. And then we all we want is to achieve that, but we're not realizing that it's just the best way to not feel our trauma. But if you actually get there, we're less likely to deal with the stuff we want to deal with. That's so true. <laughs> yep. So. Yeah, well, I think, again, back to this, can I accept myself the way that I am first? Can I be aware of who I am right now? And I love Buddhist philosophy in that it's like letting go of any attachment to the outcome and being in the mystery and being in the play. Like really just being playful with life, moment to moment. It doesn't mean I don't have goals or aspirations or things that I want to create, but it means that as life's unfolding, I'm in the playfulness with it and allowing it to unfold um, instead of constricting around it. You know, it's like, I may have this preference for an outcome, but if it doesn't go that way, I'm not emotionally distraught over the outcome. I allow it to, to go whichever way it needs to go. Do you believe we're naturally playful people? Absolutely. I think play is a, is just a part of our nature. I think a lot of that's conditioned out of us, social conditioning, um, and, um, stress responses. Uh, Dr. Porges talks about this. I was at a, a conference with him and my mother actually spoke there. And one of the things he kept coming back to is like, every person knows how to play. It's innate. Yeah. Yeah, it's a part of who they are, but play is really good for our bodies. It's really good for our nervous system. Um, and we, we don't do enough of it, right? So if we can get somebody with, say, autism to begin to play, a minute of play, two minutes of play, five minutes of play, right? Like just little bits, and not just somebody with autism, just using it as an example here, but like anybody that has difficulty with play can play a little bit. The more we do that, the more they're going to open, yeah, you know, and that interrupts some of these other neural circuits. Yeah. So I, I was I was talking to an anxiety expert in the episode before this one, and one thing he talked about that I thought was so powerful was having a playful awareness in trying to change your behavior. Yeah. Rather, let's say you catch yourself doing something that doesn't serve you, mm-hmm. rather than going straight to shame, like what the fuck, man? Why are you doing this shit? You're a bitch. Yada yada. Being like, mm-hmm. oh. I'm doing this thing again. Yeah. You know, probably not the best, but you know, just having that playful attitude with yourself really goes a a long way. Yeah. You'll hear like when you listen back to our conversation, you'll probably hear moments where I'm doing that, where I'm kind of modeling that. And that's the, the thinking process, the inner dialogue that I've adopted for myself. Who's like, huh, look at that. Curiosity. We cannot be curious and angry at the same time. Can't be curious and afraid at the same time. It just doesn't work in our body. So if I can be curious about the trigger, I'm also softening the trigger. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, wow, look at, look at that response that just happened. Yeah. I just got really stressed or I just got really scared or I just acted like an idiot. We often don't think about that because we just say awareness. Mm-hmm. But it, the voice of your awareness is so unique that mm-hmm. for me it was like a milit- militant, like catching myself, just like, don't do that, don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's just overwhelming. So I think people have to be careful with the awareness they're actually bringing to their mind. Yeah. Because it makes a huge difference. Because too often that voice of shame, yeah. like a, a strict father, yeah. you know, if we did have a strict father, it definitely does become that does. voice of like just, just uh, yeah. catching yourself, doing stuff. And it, mm-hmm. it comes at a deep cost. Mm-hmm. Father, a coach, somebody in the community. Yeah. You know, we, we get that. We can hear that from anywhere. Yeah. 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 Especially if our, if our, if our father or mother was in, in the military and yeah. that, that regimented, like really strict 
yeah. or coming from a strict religious background of any kind. You know, yeah. that, that voice, we can internalize that voice and that becomes part of us. Yeah. I think that that voice is the cause of most of my, you know, m mental illnesses. So I, I was diagnosed bipolar. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't believe in that box, but that was what the doctor told me. Mm -hmm. And I, I see it as a nervous system issue. That yeah. It's a constellation of symptoms in the nervous system where the nervous system shifts between hyperarousal and hypoarousal. Yeah. And usually there's a there's a, a disorganization to the way it's processing, right? Yeah. And learning to to find some sort of a little less intensity on one side and a little less intensity on the other. Like starting to move towards center, knowing that those swings are gonna happen. Yeah. And like being okay with that being the reality of things, but learning how to live with that reality begins to shift it. For sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I was tying it to the, to the voice of the awareness of shame was, again, I talked about this podcast, how, you know, I thought I was only worthy of love if I accomplished all the time. Yeah. So that voice in me pushed me just to, to just be stressed out and on it all the time that, yeah. of course, inevitably, you yep. know, you know, crashes yeah. Yeah. and the swing. And now, as you said, I, I just try and I, I think people get wrong is putting themselves in that box of yeah. I am bipolar. Yeah. Because then when they're in that down state, they think, yeah. oh, I'm in that down state. Yeah. And they manifest it longer, they stay in it longer. Or, yeah. I'm in the up state. Fuck, man. For yeah. me, it's just I'm experiencing a sensation of fatigue. Yeah. I'm going to choose what to do with it. I'm yeah. not going to over identify with it. I'm not going to ignore it. That's right. It just is. And I'm going to still right. do what I normally do, but it's not yeah. this huge thing. That's right. What's your take on that in this in the medical mental health world of putting these people in boxes? Well, I think that boxes can be useful if the information that they provide leads to successful interventions by the healthcare provider. I think that they can be detrimental if they don't lead to supportive or successful interventions. You know, all it is is like, it's, it's a name of a cluster of symptoms. And most, you know, you want to see what the symptoms of trauma are. Look at the DSM, you know, like literally those are the symptoms of trauma. Um, and so we can give it this name, but I don't know how helpful that is. Sometimes it's helpful because sometimes it helps us to create a treatment plan for somebody. Yeah. But other times it's really it's not helpful. And I think it'd be more helpful for the healthcare, you know, community. But I think it's less helpful for the individual. Now, there are times when having a diagnosis is actually like relieving for a person. Sure. But there are many cases like you're the one you described of yourself where it's just not helpful. I had a horror show. Yeah. I was put on nine different medications. When? How old? I was 19. Yeah. I was put on. Yeah. 280 Adderall, something else, ADHD, yeah. Yeah. SSRIs, yeah. uh, I went through as a, as a teenager too, man. Like they put me on all sorts of shit, and I, I didn't feel like myself. Scary, and I didn't need it. And it was scary. It was very frightening, yeah. and like getting kind of like being in a system of that stuff. And I've seen many people who were once on things like that, and then who've like discovered how to be with themselves. Yeah, um, and that's really what it is. It's like we don't, you know, we didn't get. A, like a, a roadmap or we didn't get a blueprint. We didn't get no. instruction manual with this body, you know? No. And if our parents haven't, they weren't able to teach us how to do these things, then you know, it's, it's not easy. So it takes a, a period of learning and, and really cultivating that within ourselves. Yeah. There's, there's just not much education, all, all this stuff. Another one that I struggle with 
the way the medical world deals with it is is ADHD, mm-hmm. especially our treatment of, of it. The fact mm-hmm. that we're giving these people stimulants mm-hmm. to me just it it doesn't make sense because you're probably familiar with Gabor Mate. He talks mm-hmm. a lot about how it's just a reflection of you know again no it's way better than me but to start the conversation mm-hmm. he talks about it as like a tuning out mm-hmm. as a young child that it was mm-hmm. too painful to feel the sensations of your trauma or abandonment yep. they tuned out to the head for me it's like that's just like a, a nervous system stimulation and to yeah. add to that to me it's like what mm-hmm. it doesn't make much sense to me well yeah i don't know the, the science of of the upper to combat the stimulant because i know that some bodies will respond by depressing the stimulant it has the opposite effect on some bodies but you know yeah i don't i don't claim any pharmacological expertise but i do agree with mate in that um early childhood experiences shape the way our body responds to stress and environment um, and that changes brain chemistry neural circuitry and the way our thought patterns form and the energy levels that our body has and so those are really natural organic responses to a situation that like needed adaptation where it's not useful anymore is later in life when the circumstances in our environment change, but our body's still reacting as though the environment was the way it used to be. Can you truly ever overcome a child of trauma? You can retrain your body to behave a little differently. The answer, yes or no, depends on the individual's body and the, the unique case. I think a lot of us, again, with that golden snapshot, we think that we can fully eradicate it from our system. Yeah. Which is, unless you're, you know, crazy successful person at this is pretty damn hard healing is a verb not a destination good one yeah Yeah. it's not talking about a place healing is a thing that we do on an ongoing basis it's it's integrating some experiences it's it's teaching our body to behave and respond differently and that happens over time you do it long enough and eventually you look back one day and you go holy shit i'm a different person like i don't even i don't even recognize who that person was and I can do that a hundred times over in my life. I can look back and go, wow, I don't know who that man was. I don't know who that boy was. I have no idea. Like, I know that that was me, but it's not me. I'm mm-hmm. nothing like that anymore. I don't respond the same way to stress anymore. Um, I don't think the same thoughts about things anymore. I don't hold the same context about the world anymore. I'm not the same in relationships anymore. You know, like, I've changed fundamentally. That's when it's so useful to leave the stories behind and put your feet yep. down. Yep. Where it, it is so true that if you pay attention to yourself right now in the present moment, if listeners do that and you feel yourself as how fucking different you are to seven, you know, mm-hmm. however long, a day, two weeks, it's that mm-hmm. we're changing so damn fast yeah. that just being here right now should just be that. It, it just should be that. Yeah. Because yeah. we think we're, if we keep identifying with who we were with that story from five years ago, mm-hmm. it's just not going to, it's not going to serve us anymore. No, it's not. Well, I've lived so many different lives because, you know, I've, I've been so many different characters in my life. If I identified with them, I wouldn't be who I am today. You know, I've been to jail. I've been arrested. You know, like I've also worked with opera companies in Carnegie Hall. You know, I have lived out of a tent, and I've also made a you know, hundred grand a month. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's there's very extreme differences between these things, and if I identified with the man or the boy that was living through the trauma and the pain that was being abused, that was cast aside, that wasn't cared for, I'd still live in a world where I saw the world that way. But it's more than identity, right? If I still felt like that man, right? If I hadn't felt those things, if I'd been avoiding them and turning away from them, dissociated from them, there's a point where I've got to feel some of that. 
but I can't feel it all at once because it overwhelms me. And then I go back to the thing. So gradually over time, I've let those pieces of me live in the past. Do they ever come to visit you at this, at this moment in time? Every once in a while, there are little things that, little fears that show up. And then, it's little. Yeah, it's smaller now. It's not like super yeah. heavy. And it's not like it's ever gone. And if I told you stories about this, my time in the group homes that I was living in and the abuse that I lived through, I'd still feel a feeling of fear or a feeling of shame or a feeling of tension in my body. It wouldn't be as intense as it was the first time I was remembering those things. Where was that showing up in your adult life in terms of connection? Well, it showed up in trusting people in relationship and getting close to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it showed up with... Not, but not just romantic relationship with women. You know, it showed up with women, showed up with men, it showed up with groups, it showed up in lots of different places. Did that lead you to isolate more or just kind of put on a mask? It was... I isolated while in connection. So I would hold back some parts of me. There's, um, in polyvagal theory, we have, there's, you know, the different... Um, nervous system responses like the stress responses so we have fight flight and freeze Mm -hmm. but dr poor just teaches us about the fawn response which is tend and befriend right or social mimicry and the fawn response is that like first line of defense and social engagement it's like uh, well if there's a if i perceive a threat to belonging into the group i might put on a mask like you said most of the time, it's not conscious. I'm not thinking I'm going to do this to impress people. It's a thing that happens, and then I can reflect on it and go, oh, wow, that was incongruent with who I am kind of thing. So I'd say that there were there were periods of my life where I did things like that, where I thought I needed to fit in. But I didn't chase fitting in. Yeah. You know, after a while, I stopped chasing that, and I just, I just was me. Yeah. I think that just being you to me comes down to, sounds cliche, and, and like everything any self-help person has ever said, but... Just truly going in with a present state of mind, mm-hmm. losing the stories, losing the expectation, just showing up at, as you are. Yeah. Because um, we get so stuck in that trap of what's this person going to think of me? Uh, is that person going to like me? What if I'm this way and they don't see it that way? That every single one of us, if we're not, you know, down, go down this road, that's the state we live in. Yeah. It's not natural. No, it's not. It's a stress state. Yeah. I mean, about we're really stressed. It's like, oh shit, you might be a threat. Oh, God, I gotta make sure that you like me. I gotta make sure I belong. Going back to your compassion points, that we need connection so damn badly that yeah. it's it's protective, it's adaptive, that we we kind of need it to to satiate that need. Yeah, yeah, we do, we do. Yeah, and when I feel like I can be myself, when I trust the impulse to be myself. And I get the feedback from you or from whoever I'm with that that's also okay, right? So there's less judgment. It's like I soften even more into that, right? And so when I can be that for someone else, they feel safe. When I can listen objectively, when I don't offer judgments or criticisms about who people are, when I normalize their behavior for them, mm-hmm. like, they just feel safer with me. Yeah. They're more inclined to open up. They're more, they're more inclined to be themselves. And when they're accepted being themselves, they're even more of themselves and they kind of bud a bit, you know, they open up and it's so much fun to see those parts of people, like to be with the parts of people 
that usually their family gets to see, but they don't, they hold it back from the rest of the world. Yeah. But we could all do that by learning how to be with ourselves first, right? So that we can be with others, right? So when I can accept me, I can accept you. I can accept, accept the parts of you that are, the me parts of me that are in you. Yeah. You know, yeah. but if I'm still judging myself, then I can't possibly be with the parts of you yeah. that are like me. Yeah, because right now I feel like one of, my, one of my focuses is how can we, it's a crazy thing to think we have a problem with, but how can we talk to each other? And we're, play, we're facing so much polarization on every issue. We are. That to me, it, it comes down to, to trauma. Mm-hmm. That if you, it's hard for me to find a healed person who gets triggered in a debate. Like when someone is, I'm talking to someone about a political issue yeah. and they're getting flared up. Yeah. It's To me, it's because I've been there. Yeah. I, I used to be, you know, I was in college, a hardcore, you know, lefty mm-hmm. snowflake. Not that I'm on the other side anymore, but it's, it's just, I, that was yeah. my identity. Of, yeah. Yeah. If you don't believe this, you are a bad person, you're wrong. Yeah. And it was just projected trauma. Yeah. Once I healed that, that side of me, mm-hmm. where it's not fully gone, but I observed it and mm-hmm. didn't throw it out. Yep. And life became so much better. I could talk yeah. to people. Yeah. I could make them feel safe. No matter what they believe, I can just sit with them. That's right. And feel love. Yeah. So I'm curious to see your take on how trauma causes that issue we're having in society of not being able to talk to each other. Well, if everybody else is a threat. Yes. You know, if I'm yeah. under, if I have unresolved threat responses in my body, if I'm still feeling like I'm not safe because of the things that are living inside of me. And we're walking around with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, our, our perception of the world is through that stress, right? So you're a threat to me mm-hmm. if, I, if I don't feel safe in my body. And if I don't know that I don't feel safe, I'm going to think it's you that's not safe. Yeah. Right. So then we have these polarizing discussions where like, I'm terrified and I'm even more terrified because you're challenging my, what I believe is real and what hold, helps me to feel safe in the world. Right? And for me to let go of that, man, that's hard. Yeah. Right. And so we 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 see this. I mean, political. God, man, it it breaks my heart. It's horrible that we can't be in what the true meaning of a debate or an argument. Like we used to be able to do that. You know, fifty years ago, we could get into discussions with each other about differing opinions, where it didn't become an attack on somebody's character or a belittlement of that person. You know, we could actually hold these differing opinions. Yep. And it's hard. It's really hard for people to do that nowadays. Yeah. I thought about it this way, that we have a hard time holding duality as human beings. Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. Where like two things can be true at the same time, where for me, it's like, and it doesn't have to be the logic. That's where I think people get misunder- yep. misunderstand me. If they're feeling a certain way, that's true. Mm-hmm. It is. That's the way I think about it. If I have this belief, right? Yeah. And I think that's true. But this person's a trauma, and I need that belief to feel secure. Yeah, that's true. That's true for them. It's yeah. true for them. It is. We yeah. don't have to agree on the words, but right. I can see that feeling. I had that feeling in me. Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah, exactly. That does. It. That was what I was talking about earlier with relationships. You know, like we may not believe that the, that, that that person's right for feeling the way they're feeling, but what they're feeling is right to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a yeah. subtle distinction, but man, is it impactful? Yeah. You know, because. When I can trust that, then I can soften myself a little bit and I could be with my partner in there or my, my friend in, yeah. in their emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. But it's sad. I lost a, a lot of friends after, after COVID. Yeah. I bet. Just because of that. Just because they couldn't handle what I believed. Yeah. And to me, it wasn't even about that. It was just like, yeah. you really can't see the person who's loved you for years, been yeah. kind to you, just become threatening your, your idea. Yeah. It's sad that we're there right now. Mm-hmm. And it truly is. And I think it's going to get worse because we're to keep avoiding our trauma. I, I think you're right. Until we face it, until the, until the, until people face it, it, 
will continue to get worse. Yeah. Because they're not dealing with it. We can't, we can only avoid it for so long and then it turns into a health crisis. Gabor Mate talks about this and he does a good job of pointing to, you know, the symptoms of health, of health and disease that we see are often related to either early childhood experiences or midlife, you know, whatever, some trauma. Do you read his new book? I haven't read the new one yet. It's crazy, man. Like he, he basically scientifically pinpoints how so many of these cancers and, and diseases have the same personality. Yeah. That it just makes blew sense my mind. To me. Absolutely blew my mind. We, and we need more people studying that like he is. Yeah. Um, because that helps to open up the connection between these things. It's like, ah, this is connected to this. Holy crap. Well, then I can do something about it. And yeah. I can prevent it from happening too. Yeah. That's what people don't understand is that when we repress pain, we think it vanishes into the cosmos. Yeah. It goes into the body. That's right. It stays there. That's right. It doesn't disappear. And then that causes it causes disease. That's right. So that's what, and I fully believe that when, so when my mom died of, of cancer about six months ago in, mm. from People in the scientific world are just like, oh, she had this cancer. She had the worst child that I could ever, I could ever speak of. Mm. Truly horrible. And I knew she was going to get sick. She wasn't dealing with it. Yeah. I always told her, Mom, when I was going down this road, I was like, Mom, please, please do this. Please do this. Yeah, yeah. As, a, as a kid, and hurt me. But seeing that happen, her, her passed away, to now me is like, fuck. That just hit me. Of like, I, I, myself, all the power I can do is, is really heal her side of it killed her out of me. That's right. So yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be the yeah. same, same situation. And for everyone, too, it's like, fuck really for our own health period mm -hmm. our survival is quite literally dependent on how we move away from trauma it is yeah and, and integrate those experiences yeah 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 agreed yeah and we all have an opportunity to to interrupt some of the things that have happened in our lineage and to heal the imprint of some of that so there is there's some of the imprint from my mother's childhood in me and your mother's and you right and there's a way that our body has, like, it needed that because it prepared us for the world that we were coming into. Yeah. It's, there's a real intelligence in that. And there's also something we can do about it. Yeah. And it takes time, you know, like, I would say, plan to spend the rest of your life attending to these little things. And it, just like we maintain and take care of our body and need to eat food and drink water every day, you yeah. know, like, we maintain and attend to these things every day and they get softer and softer and softer. There's um there's an interview. Well, there was a conversation that Peter Levine had with Thomas Subel, and um, I loved this analogy that he made. He was talking about trauma. Somebody asked about whether it's ever really goes away, you know, if it's ever healed, right? Like there's a point of healing, right? And he said, well, imagine that there's like a like a jagged piece of a wood of, of piece of wood, and every time you get close to it, it pokes you, it hurts, right? Now imagine that each time you visit that jagged piece of wood, you're able to run a bit of a piece of sandpaper over it and soften it. Mm -hmm. Eventually, when you do trauma work, eventually there's a little nub on that piece of wood, but it's smooth. It's never gone. It's always there. You know it's there. You can recognize it, but it doesn't hurt to touch it anymore. And it's like that with a scar, right? Like I have this scar here on my finger. When I was eight years old, I was whittling on a piece of wood and I was making a, an arrow for a bow and arrow with a little tiny pocket knife, one of the Swiss Army pocket knives, and I cut down to the bone. <clears throat> now, I don't have any pain or discomfort in my finger here. It healed great. But I can feel the little points where I had 
the sutures. Yeah. I can feel the scar tissue, which will always be with me. Yeah. And so it's the same with trauma. Yeah. There'll be little, little things that can aggravate and remind us that, oh yeah, there was like, I really had a wound about that. Like in relationship, there may always be this little tickle of something that I'm like attending to. Yeah. But eventually it gets soft enough that I can feel it, that I can stay with it, that I can be with it. And then I know that I'm going to be okay. Yeah. 100% true. The fact that that's 100% true is why it's hard for people to cultivate some kind of hope around all this. Because mm -hmm. objectively, the people who understand this game realize that it's a long fucking game. Mm -hmm. It takes militant attention to do this. Therefore, it can get hard to then just dedicate yourself to that road. Then zooming out, it's hard to have hope for humanity in my eyes a little bit because it's going to take generations and generations and generations to get to a point where, as you said, that goal of yours of, of ending trauma, ending trauma comes true. How do, well, you, how do you sit with that? It's true. It, for us to change the trajectory of human history and the way that we condition ourselves, it'll take generations because it's embedded in every facet of human nature. It's a part of our genetic structure in a way. I, I may be inaccurate in the way that I'm saying that, but there's a, there's a bit of genetic memory that translates to impulses and reactions to our environment. And I think that it will take time to recondition us or to condition us into a new way of being. And then the culture has to change. You know, the ways that we are with each other have to change. And to kind of come back to that idea that Seth Godin shared, you know, it's going to, I think it takes that being the thing that everybody just needs to do so that everything else drops away. You know, like this needs to make sense to the market. It needs to make sense to humanity for us to turn towards it. And until there's something that's big enough or bad enough or a problem that's big enough, we probably won't or until we understand it well enough. Yeah. But when we understand it, it'll be a no brainer. It'll just be one of those like, well, of course we're going to, yeah, well, let's deal with this. Yeah. I'm going to use the word God here, even though I don't believe in the man in the sky. I just think it's good for this argument. Mm -hmm. To me, some some power gave us COVID. Mm -hmm. And we could have used it to have empathy help mm -hmm. and use this crisis to come together, love, and really have compassion for each other. Mm -hmm. Complete opposite. Yeah. Went complete extreme in the other direction. That Even when human nature has opportunities to do this, we run. Well, we're not through it yet. Yeah. You know, we're, we're only what? two and a half years out from the you know from that beginning to happen yeah. so in five or ten years we may look back on this and have a different perspective yeah. of things you know we may band together we may come together the adverse reactions to the vaccines that we're seeing inside of people you yeah. know like there may be a coming together that humanity is going to experience that they haven't that we haven't seen yet yeah. you know there may still be that thing yeah. it, we're we're so close to it it's hard to know but i think that I suspend my judgment of it for now yeah. because there, who knows what's coming, you know? And I don't say that in a doomsday way. It's just like, we just don't know what's going to come from this. Yeah. People want to live and want to survive. And when that's threatened, they do everything they can to live and survive. Well, I think what we saw was, was a lot of that. Yeah. People fighting to live and survive in the ways that they thought was going to make them live and survive. And now... We have a bit of a different perspective. Yeah. And that's going to change even more over the next five or 10 years and so on and so forth into the future. Right. And so when, when we look back on this and, you know, 
be interesting to reflect on this, you know, in five five or so years. Yeah. Revisit this this conversation and go, wow, look at how much has changed. Yeah. Because it's hard to know. But you're right. Right now it's dividing us. Yeah. Globally. Yeah. But I don't think that's the yeah. end of the story. Yeah. Whenever I post on my social media like quick fixes to help you, which I'll do it's a game. Mm-hmm. I'll do that. A slideshow of like little things to do it if you have your mm-hmm. have this anxiety skyrocket. Mm-hmm. The minute I mention anything to do with, hey, let's talk to each other. Let's figure out why we are so polarized. Mm-hmm. It's like negative comment. People are like, man, stay in your lane. You don't know shit. It's like, man, I have a degree in political science. Like, I, I, it's just part of my, my game. But we're so like, we're so resistant yeah. to it. We're, yeah. we're so resistant to talking to each other. That's right. And it, it's, I hate hammering this nail, but it's, it's mm-hmm. just so, we don't realize how much of an issue it is. I agree, man. I agree. I agree. In that trauma piece too, that how can we heal if we can't come together? We, yeah. We can't. Literally, we can't. We stay fragmented. We can't. Like, it's not even the issues themselves. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can't be vulnerable. We can't trust people yeah. to say, hey, man, I'm feeling this way yeah. because we're so reactive. Yeah. Yeah. Look at Brene Brown's work, man. I mean, like, her stuff is amazing. And it really points to the part of the problem. She did a series at South By that um, is on HBO. I think it's called Atlas of the Heart. It's about her new book. Uh, really great. I loved it. And essentially, she's talking to people about, like, how do we identify emotions, right? And she shows, he, she's got a brilliant way of helping people to identify the emotions that they're experiencing. But like who we let into our inner world, it does matter. Because if I come to you and I'm falling apart and I'm crying and you don't, you can't be with me in that, like I'm going to further make it hard for myself yep. by doing that, right? It's part I, of the system. That's right. I mean, if I bring my shame to you and you, and you're like, fuck that dude, or you make a judgment of me yeah. that I'm going to, I'm going to recoil inside. Right. Yeah. And so knowing who to do that with matters a lot. An ideal world, we'd all know how to do those things, but yeah. unfortunately yeah. that's just not I mean, the nature it, of Again, in the system, especially as men, those who make it to the top, ignore how they feel. They shut it down, they shame it. So if someone comes to you saying, Hey Matt, I'm feeling this, I need help. You meet them the way you meet you. Suck it up. Mm-hmm. It ain't no thing like like stopping a bitch. Mm-hmm. And the fact that especially men are, are this way to me is what's causing all these all these issues with men. Mm-hmm. You know, women obviously have their issues, but I've seen it. You know, dating girls and stuff. When I've broken up with them and have an issue, they run to the group of girls. They're all holding each other, mm-hmm. holding each other. I mean that like yeah. I've seen that holding each yeah. other, yeah. Uh, crying, giving space. Yeah. What does a man do? No. Sits at home with a bottle of whiskey. That's right. Puts on some porn. Friends take them out to go drinking, yep. to go get laid, to go, yep. you know, objectify another yep. human being or to shoot shit or to break shit yep. or to beat each other up. Yeah, I know, man. I know. It's, um, how'd you escape that? Come see me. You were there once. I was never a violent man. I mean, more so in the, in the world of, if you weren't that way, incorrect assumption, but mm. when, like, if you're facing, in the past, like a very emotional situation mm-hmm. where you couldn't go to your brothers and say, man, I need yeah. love. I need, I need to hold, I need to be held right now. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would do it alone. Yeah. Um, um, there might be a woman in my life that I would reach to, but very rarely. And most of the time it was, I did it alone. And yeah. it was rare that I would feel safe when, like when I'm thinking back to, you know, 15, 20 years ago now, but, uh, when I was your age, yeah, no, I turned to a bottle. I turned to a joint. I, I, turn to a psychedelic i you know something that distracted me television booze porn 
um, video games, you know, like being out with a group of people playing music. I mean, music was a good one for me too. Like yeah. I played a lot of music, but anything to distract me from the feeling, right? That's not turning towards it. And, and, and you're right, man, men are not taught to do this. I think there's more of a movement of it, which is good, yeah. but, um, there are a lot of movements out there that are giving lip service to this shit. Yeah. Come be a part of our community, be a part of our, our, you know, like you're our brother, that kind of stuff. We're here for you, but not really. Yeah. We just say the things that we know you need to hear and draw you in. Yeah. But then in fact, we don't actually support you when you need it. Yeah. We're just, we're just there because those are the things that we're supposed to say. Yeah. And there's a lot of that because men aren't taught how to do that. Yeah. I even still catch it myself. Knowing what I do now, it's become a different thing where I have the identity of, of a self-help person, right? So for me, it's mm -hmm. like, man, if I go ask someone to help them, I, I don't know shit. Mm -hmm. It's that like egoistic thinking yeah. where even now where I know the dangers of it, I've been there, I still, I still do. I find it hard to, when I'm struggling, inevitably to say, hey man, I'm confused. I'm hurt. Yeah. I don't need fixing, but I just need to tell you that and, and to be seen for that. Yeah. There's still part of me that just like, eh. nope, nope. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of ingrained, which is, which is a... Uh, the thing that's helped me most with that is having a long-term mentor. Being able to, to like weekly or twice a month or, you know, regularly for years, have a person that I can confide in and I can talk to that can know the vulnerable details of my life. That that's the only context between the two of us. Like that's taught me how to lean into something like that. Yeah. Um, and then having other mentors that I worked with and it's really taught me how to lean into and how to turn towards support and vulnerability yeah. practicing it but again it's like i've been saying you know it's about what we practice we get good at the things that we practice yeah also curious about your form of communicating to that person i think when we're in a vulnerable situation we need help the language we take on can be problematic in my eyes of saying mm -hmm. i i i feel i i i i am attacked like it's just so much of this egoistic i story mm -hmm. but i'm assuming you take this approach which is more empowering is i've been noticing this sensation in me Sometimes depends on whether I'm, it uh, depends on how I'm triggered. You know, some of the mentors that I've worked with, I worked with when I was in really heated emotional experiences and in those experiences, I'm just being a human being yes. and they're that compassionate witness. It's like, okay, I'm hearing you. They're reflecting to me what they're yeah. hearing. They're interpreting my words and helping me to find new language for it. They're being compassionate with me and then they're helping me to understand myself. Um, and those have been some of the most potent experiences for me is like in those moments having the person that i'm there with regularly that's helping me to hold a new context in the world also to process things both emotionally and psychologically and physically and then having people who really are like a coach or a trainer in the moment that's like you know here's how you do that curl here's how you do this you know burpee Here's how you do this squat so you don't in injure yourself. Here's how you do this emotion so that you don't hurt yourself, right? Yeah. Like having that person to coach me through those experiences. So then I'm like, oh, oh, this is what it's like to have an emotional experience and to be met. Yeah. I'm not too much. I'm not bad. I'm not wrong. You know, like I'm accepted. I'm okay. It's all right to be vulnerable. They're not leaving. They're staying, you know, like that experience, the visceral experience of that changes things. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, you know, we can have the intellectual experience of that, but it doesn't necessarily change it. Yeah. The more I hear you, the more I start believing. It's so true that you only can really figure out this stuff in relation. Yeah. 
uh, you know, again, I was under the false impression, probably until this conversation, honestly, mm -hmm. that I could do it all myself. I still think to some degree, maybe a little bit. It all happens within you. Yeah. We, we need the mirror sometimes. Yeah, we need the mirror. Yeah. We, I can't see myself. My eyes look out. Yeah. I need somebody to reflect to me the parts yeah. of me I can't see. Yeah, that's why nothing, to me, nothing's been more healing, but also brutal than entering romantic relationships. Nothing, and I was chilling when I was just single, doing nothing. But then once I was face to face in my band movements, my all the stuff, mm -hmm. my mom, yeah. like I needed that mirror bad, mm -hmm. or else I would I would have been blind. Yeah, I wouldn't have seen it at all. Yeah, they say I don't know who they is in this equation, but they say you know you really want to develop yourself and, and get to know yourself, get into relationship, and uh, and then you want to take it to the next step. You really want to get to know yourself, have a child, because that's going to show you who you are. How? Because they're going to be like you. Huh. They're going to behave like you in all the ways that you don't notice about yourself. There's a there's a a, a friend of mine. Uh, his name's Larry Goldfarb incredible somatic teacher i mean absolutely unbelievable and brilliant man i mean this man whew, i don't feel ignorant around a lot of people i know that i'm pretty smart but this guy i don't have a lot to say to add to conversations with him because he's just so brilliant but he talks about this technique that he teaches called feldenkrais and um he says you know you know there's that that woman that lives down the street and you know her, not that you know her personally, but you know how she moves. And let's say her name's Nancy, Nancy down the street. It could be dark out, storming. You could barely see, but if you saw Nancy walking out on the street, you'd know it's Nancy because there's a certain way that she moves. Nancy could never see that about herself. Hmm. There's a way that you are in the world that you will never see without outside support. But it's the way that everybody knows that you are you. It's the way you move. It's the way you breathe. It's the way that you behave. We can't see our behavior like that. And the brilliance of having support and mentorship is that we begin to notice these parts of us that only others can see. And as we become aware of those things, we can figure out our brain and our body can decide, is that the most useful way of doing that? When's it healthy to point something out in relationship? When it doesn't injure the other. How do you do that? Wait till a moment when the person's not triggered. That's a good rule. Do it in a kind way. Would it be okay if I shared something with you or, for, or something I noticed about you? Would you be willing to listen? Can I say it in a way that doesn't make any accusation of the other? Like, I noticed this thing happen when you said this and this and this. I felt a little funny inside, but I'm wondering, would you be willing to tell me what you were thinking? Right. So I'm asking for more information, but I'm also trying to understand. Yeah. So that's an example. But I noticed your body move this way. I noticed your posture changed. I noticed your breathing changed. What's going on inside there? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to start... Wrapping up, before I do that, I wanted to share a, a story with you mm -hmm. um, to see your, your take on it. I haven't heard anything like this, but I'll see if you're familiar with it. So recently, I I, I, I separated from a woman I was dating for three years. Mm -hmm. I was going to marry her. I thought, thought it was the end, end goal for me. Mm -hmm. I thought I was feeling it. I thought I was with it. I had a dream where she she passed away. Yeah. And I woke up 
in a state where my I couldn't even think. Yeah. But I was howling. Yeah. I was fully like I never released something like that before. Yeah. It was a half an hour straight of howling, like crying all this stuff. Yeah. And then the next day when I woke up, I felt like, whoa. Yeah, different. Have you ever heard of that? Like a dream, yeah. a dream leading to such an intense emotional experience that bypasses logic, mm-hmm. that clears a lot of energy from the system. Well, we could interpret it as the energy was cleared from the system, or we could interpret it as you felt relief after having that kind of emotional experience. And and both might be true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. And in the somatic work that I do, sometimes things like that happen. Yeah. Uh, sometimes people feel emotions and big, really big ways. It's my job as their support to make sure that it's not so much that it overwhelms them to like help them to stay inside of their, their capacity. When do you re-traumatize yourself? Is that possible? Well, I think there's a fine line between, I mean, like the way we use language, we, we often think of re-traumatization, but I think more than often than not, it's re-triggering. Good. Uh, it's triggering the trauma. It's like triggering that imprint. I mean, I think we could re-traumatize ourselves if we we put ourselves in a new scenario that's similar to the old one and it, and it creates more of a stress impact that lingers on in our body. Like you, you know, repeat a relationship from the same dynamics you had as a kid. Like the intensity, like the person is is maybe is doing the same trigger, mm-hmm. like is is doing the same thing your parents that triggered you a lot. Yeah, over I'd and say, over and over. And I'd say that we do that. We do seek out similar yeah, situations course, yeah. to try to play out the scenario and do it differently. Um, there's a real interesting intelligence in that where, where I think the body's looking for a way to redo it, but do it differently. But oftentimes we find ourselves back in that cycle of the situation where we're re-experiencing it, but we're not doing it new. How do you how how do you explain Maybe not scientifically, but in your in your logical mind, attracting a trauma bond. Like, how do you? Well, it I, makes sense to me. Yeah. How, how would you explain it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like we've got these two puzzle pieces, and they they both have these little gaps, and they. How seem... do you feel off the bat? So I'm always curious about like, how do you feel off the bat? Like, how does your unconscious know off the bat this person is going to trigger me in these ways? Well, we don't always know. Um. There is a difference, though, that like overwhelming, falling, exciting, passionate, like drunk feeling that we can have with a person can sometimes be um, a warning sign. Yep. Right. But a lot of us interpret that to be love. What's the warning sign? Well, that it might, there might be some intense stuff that comes up in that relationship. Yep. Um, oftentimes, we need that. There's like a certain healing or something that can come from that. And many of us are not aware enough to know that. So we just go through the motions and do it again and again and again. I've had many similar relationships where the fight was the same fight. I yeah. felt the same. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. In the situation. And that happened until I became more aware of what this was. Oh, this is about that thing that happened with my mom. Oh, Jeez, here I am doing it again. I have friends that'll call saying, man, if I get a new girl, none of this stuff will happen. Like, bro, you're going to get the same shit over and over again until you heal it. Over and over again until you heal it. Working with my teacher, he kept saying to me, Will, you need to turn towards this. Don't leave the relationship. Turn towards the pain. Turn towards the trigger. Turn towards the thing that's coming up. Because if you don't understand it now, you'll it'll happen again for you to understand again 
and some other version may happen. But if, you know, when I turned, I kept turning towards it and it was hard and it was painful and I kept turning towards it. And then finally it clicked and I was like, oh, that's the piece. It's not about her. I don't even, I'm not even seeing my partner right now. I'm seeing that moment. Like I'm somewhere else in my body. And yeah. like, I'm overwhelmed because of that overwhelming set of circumstances that I didn't heal from. And here I am in a situation that's triggering that memory. Yeah. And as soon as I identified that, it did. It wasn't like suddenly everything changed. But progressively, bit by bit, I was able to feel differently in those scenarios. Be a little less triggered and a little less triggered and a little less triggered. Now when that stuff comes up, I know what it is. Doesn't mean it doesn't come up. Yeah. Right? But I know what it is. Yeah, it's so funny how in those situations, your mind goes straight to run. Like, yeah. I got to get out of here. Like, fuck this bitch. All those crazy thoughts that come up that are just making you do whatever you can to think the thought that makes you avoid the feeling the most. Well, that's to get safe. Yeah. And maybe yours is run. Maybe somebody else's is fight. Yeah. Maybe somebody else's is just become numb. Yeah. Like, I would, I would get kind of stuck. I would, freeze. I would, yeah, I would freeze. And then if I was in that frozen state for too long, I might fight a little bit. Um, and then, but I, I, mine wasn't to run. Yeah. But sometimes I did want to run and I would feel paralyzed and like, I can't run because then I'll lose love. Yeah. You know? And so it, it's really interesting how, how complicated it can get for us. Yeah. And when is it correct part ways? It's always a hard question. Well, I think when we've done all we can. You know, I we, truly mean that. And and we truly mean that. Yeah. And um I still run a training with my with my previous partner. Well wow. she and I run a training company together. And the company's successful. It's great. And we're doing really well. Um and we got to a point in our relationship where we had done everything we could. And we were able to to step to separate ourselves romantically, but stay connected. Was that tough? It was easier than I thought it was gonna be. How? Well, because of who we are and who we'd become in the process, we were able to stay connected. We were able to talk about it. We worked with a practitioner who was absolutely brilliant. His uh -huh. name is Pat Siebert. And um, he practices nonviolent communication and a bunch yeah. of body different body works things. But and he's here in Austin. He's, he's amazing. Um, but we were able to work with somebody that helped us to, like, to go through the stress in a way that was connective instead of disconnecting. Yeah. Both of us were more committed to being connected than we were to throwing a temper tantrum, being angry at each other, putting each other down. We wanted to stay connected and we wanted to maintain our business. And man, what we've created together is beautiful. And I still love the person, you know, I still love her. We still create together. It's great. Yeah. And it's different. It's on our it's on it's on new terms. Yeah. And then we, that meant that we were able to close the chapter around that one part and move forward and learn new things it's beautiful man that's the opposite to what i did um, but it's, it's the opposite to what i've done all the other times you know there's been i say all power too because in my like heart for me you know i think it's healthy to ask yourself everyone listening it's a cliche thing but it's true what would love do and that truly is the answer to what, what would love do yeah. love wouldn't just be like out peace don't talk to me again like see you later yeah. you know it's done that's not what love would do so no, no it's not all power you're to right. you you're right it is and Sometimes it's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. You know? And there were many moments where it was hard. Yeah. But it was beautiful too. Yeah. And and so, you know, I'm committed to learning to love other human beings. You know? yeah. and the, the person I'm dating now, I'm 
loving her in a new way. And I learned so much from my other relationship that now I get to apply to this one. Yeah. And, you know, as life unfolds, we learn and we grow and we can give the gift of that learning and yeah. that growth to whoever is. is, is I think it's such a powerful perspective to look at past lovers is that they're perpetually preparing you to be ready for the one. The one's really you at the end of the day. So it's yeah. like it, it kind of has this road to, to allow you to, to love yourself at the deepest level. It's all, it's all showing you that, that journey. Yeah. Uh, on that note, and if there are any uh, socials or places people can check you out that you want people to look at your work or, or connect yeah. with you. Yeah, I don't know when this will air, but um, I run a training three times a year that teaches this stuff that we're talking about. And um, it's called Trauma and Somatics. And it's at Trauma and Somatics on Instagram. It's traumaandsomatics.com. And then you can find my personal um, Instagram at Will Reason. And it's R-E-Z-I-N. My website's willreason.com. Facebook is the same thing. Yeah. I'm semi active on social and people good. can reach out if they want to get a hold of me. I've been around a good amount of, of the big hitter influencers and stuff, but you're the most I've met who knows what they're talking about. Thanks, man. So it's a really honor to have you today. I hope people can, can see that as well. You're, you're the real deal. So, Thanks, brother. Thank Thanks for much. having me here, man. Of course.